0: hi i'm april and i'm steph And you're listening to The Thirst A podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture Including film, TV and music As well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing You can find us online with Twitter at thethirst Facebook.com forward slash thethirstpod We're over on Instagram as well at thethirstpod You can find us on Podbean and Apple Podcasts By searching for The Thirst We're also on Spotify as well And if you want to email us you can do so It's thethirstpod at gmail.com We also have a blog where we share lots of links To anything that we mention on the episode And the URL for that is thethirstpod wordpress.com also have a look on the show notes as well because if those work correctly which is debatable there should be a link for that there as well and um, this is episode 51 i have absolutely nothing for 51 apart from one single sentence right what's that uh it is just simply did you know that skeet ulrich is 51 i know my
1: boy skeet ulrich yeah that's it. Aging handsome man, you know. Like a fine wine. Oh, beautiful, beautiful man. I had uh I had a couple of things. I had I don't I, I mean it could entirely debatable whether any of these are interesting. Uh, obviously Area 51, which is the highly classified US highly classified Air Force facility, or whatever it is out in the desert, so a uh, nice little hotbed for UFO conspiracy theories and there's a few films about that. There's one called Area 51. Wow. Original. There's another one called 51. Wow. Yeah, great. What else was there? Oh, Studio 51, which was an alternative name for the Ken Coyler Jazz Club in London, which is no longer there, which is where the Rolling Stones were regularly playing. And it's where Lennon and McCarthy (laughs) spotted the Stones manager walking outside and asked him for an introduction. That is my uh, exciting trivia. Is that literally it? Uh, Yeah, unless you (laughs) want to know that 51 is the fourth episode of the fifth season of Breaking Bad.
0: I did, yeah, thanks for that. That was information I've been desperately craving, so I'm glad that you associated that indeed.
1: Celebrities who are 51... Obviously, Skeet Ulrich, as you mentioned, he was on the list. Uh, J-Lo. Sure. Jay-Z. Yep. Brent Stefani. I'm baffled by that, but that's okay. She also doesn't look 51. No insane uh matthew perry who's got a finger that's shorter than all the other fingers which is the thing i learned today uh jack black diddy what's his name now diddy sean combs p diddy puff daddy um just going do do you have any feelings regarding jack
0: black is that a pandora's box we shouldn't open do you
1: mean feelings that are adjacent to the fact that you
0: obviously fancy jack black (laughs) no but do you like him generally
1: um yeah he's fine okay cool great thanks continue uh matthew mcconaughey all right all right all right all right all right right. and uh christian slater who just doesn't get discussed enough really underrated talent big let's begin discussing him now it was great in mr robot that was a tv show i really enjoyed uh great chat shall we move on to some news yeah sure some things have happened since we last recorded it's been a while we've been very busy but seemingly the celebrity pop culture world hasn't been very busy I would argue that that's not the case because
0: everyone seems to be doing stuff. It's just that none of it's like particularly interesting beyond like celebrities. They're living their lives again. There are other places on the internet that you can find, you know, pictures of people just being spotted doing things. Eating lunch. (laughs) Eating their lunch. Finally dining out after lockdown. That's the main thing. Yeah, lucky them. So from the news front, from our perspective, uh, some things have happened that we thought we would discuss. The first of which is uh, Lord, she's back. Good Lord. Good Lord. Praise the Lord. Sorry. So we've got a new single video and album announcement from Lord. So uh, if you are unfamiliar with the work of Lord, how many times have I said Lord in the last 2 minutes? Lordy, many Lordy, times. Lordy. I don't know. New Zealand pop icon Lord announced her return with her lead single Solar Power, followed by the news that the album with the same title will be released on August the 20th. It's her first album since the release of Melodrama four years ago. Uh, fans knew that something was brewing when she uh, appeared on the lineup for next year's Primavera festival in Barcelona, which was announced last month. Her website also had posted a few teasers and then due to a streaming platform mess up, the lead single Solar Power leaked on Thursday the 10th of june which was solar eclipse day love that excuse me it was my birthday uh, is that important to the telling of this story yes it is okay it was a lovely gift it was announced specifically for you on your birthday which was Solar Eclipse Day thanks it was later uploaded properly a few hours later with, along with a video which was filmed on a very serene looking beach it does have a sort of like I don't know weird Wicker Man Midsommar vibes but maybe we can come on to that the song itself has been compared to both George Michael's Freedom 90 and Primal Screams Loaded the artwork features her Bare leg shot from below. A photo she revealed was taken by her best friend, Ophelia.
1: Bare leg shot from below? You mean her bum?
0: Well, it's her bum, but I didn't... Her little peachy bum. Her little peachy bum. Um, the album announcement itself came uh, 11 days later on Monday the 21st, which was summer solstice. She is loving a theme, apparently. She revealed that she'd been working with Jack Antonoff, her longtime collaborator, and though they'd been in studios together in both New Zealand and Los Angeles, the album itself was recorded largely in her native Auckland. And this sentence from her newsletter It. I will just preface this by saying, I love Lord so much. She is absolutely cringe and embarrassing sometimes. But she's right. also like 12, so I don't mind. She's one of us. Of the album, Um, She says, it's a celebration of the natural world, an attempt at immortalizing the deep transcendent feelings I have when I'm outdoors. (laughs) In times of heartache, grief, deep love or confusion, I look to the natural world for answers. I've learned to breathe out and tune in. This is what came through. Um, She's also announced a global tour for 2022 and she's playing some smaller venues. Now, lots of information there to unpack. The thing I will just say immediately is like, only lord could announce her comeback with like "Song of the summer solar power with a video where she's just frolicking on a beach because essentially she has spent almost all of the last year in new zealand which has to their credit remained largely untouched by covid so she's just been like living her life In a like relative wave of
1: positivity while we've all
0: been going
1: through hell and suffering. So she's just representing all of New Zealand there as they laugh at us from their lovely sun kissed beaches. Yeah,
0: just, you know, going about their normal daily lives without the constant fear of everything looming over her. So the single itself is quite different from the stuff that was on her last album, melodrama. I think it's been interestingly received. I have mixed feelings on it. Um it definitely arrived at a time where I was just like absolutely hyped needed Lord to come back. I and mean, then it was really nice weather as well yeah. when it came
1: out. So it was just like, oh the summer yeah. it's
0: here. It's a nice
1: summer you know, it's a nice summer song, isn't it? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Like I I wished that I'd had somewhere to go that was outdoors so I could listen to it as opposed to, like, yeah. sitting in my room on
1: Spotify. It's not subdued, but it's sort of... It's quiet and self-assured, I guess, and it does have mm. that summery vibe, but it is quite the antithesis to, say, releasing Greenlight, which right. it, it's just a very, very different sound. So, as you say, like, it, I'm sure this will be, like, a really nice summer record, but it just... It already sounds so, so different to what came before it wasn't quite what I was expecting.
0: No, absolutely. I guess it's kind of interesting. It's definitely more chill. You mentioned Greenlight there, which was like such a banging first single to release. Um, She has done a few interviews where she's said that actually kind of like always with her, the first single isn't necessarily wholly reflective of the album Mm. as a whole. So it will be interesting to see if many of the other songs are like this.
1: Do we know if Jack Antonoff is doing the whole
0: record? I don't know, actually. I have a feeling that, He might be doing production on all of it. It wouldn't really surprise me, seeing as they're, like, extremely close and have collaborated quite a lot and they are pals. But... I mean, I I think I will say is that there's been a lot of interesting discussion upon the internet of late regarding Jack Antonoff, who obviously is working quite closely with people like Lord, Taylor Swift, Lana Del Rey. He was also announced to be working on Clara's new record as well, which is kind of cool. And I know that a lot, I mean, I really like Jack Antonoff. I really like Bleachers. I think he's great. And I think it's really nice that there are a lot of like female singers who like him enough and feel comfortable yeah. enough to work with him on. A regular basis he's obviously preferred like yeah by these women absolutely and it seems to make quite a nice contrast to like other producers on the whole and also when there's been a lot of controversy around kind of other producers perhaps just like not being okay mm-hmm. dr luke for example so i don't you know i just i think it's quite nice that these women keep going back and working with them because they obviously feel like they do good work together so
1: yeah and i think some of that production sometimes i mean you can sometimes pick up elements and think like, yeah, that does sound like Jack Antonoff, but I think it sounds, I think all of those artists sound different enough. Yeah, um, and are putting out great music, so it's hard to hard to argue when the music is that good.
0: I also think it's really hard for me personally to be objective because I do like him and his music independently of the stuff that he works on with other people. So
1: mm. I mean, I I like Bleachers, but I'm and, and I'm like like I like Jack Antonoff, mm. but I'm not like deeply invested in anyway. Yeah, and um, I don't have a problem with him working across the board or being very much flavor of the month for people at the moment. Credit to him. Yeah, I think it would be different if he
0: was just like. Turning out rubbish constantly. Oh, yeah. It's hard to argue against
1: it, isn't it, when it's really good?
0: But I am personally very much looking forward to this album. I really like Lorde, um,
1: and she's only got two records, so it's quite nice to know that there'll be. Trying to get anything out of her. I mean, we've been starved for her for like, what, how many years? Since 2017. So um it's nice that we're being rewarded after this particularly painful period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, it will be interesting to see. I mean, I'm going to try and get tickets to see her. I feel like I will not be successful. Godspeed. I've never seen her before. So that would be a nice gift, wouldn't it? So uh, everyone, please pray for me. Fingers and toes crossed. Um, So we initially touched on her at the beginning of this episode and I'm so glad that we get to talk about this.
1: I cannot believe how many fucking times this person has come up in our podcast (laughs) in the past year. It's not what I wanted.
0: No, considering that you are, like, famously not a fan of Ben Affleck. Famously not a fan. This is the third time I think he's come up so far this year, and I'm pleased because big, big fan over here. So, big news. He's propping up the news cycle at the moment. He really is. Uh, Yet again, another year of Ben Affleck's overarching presence in the paparazzi world. So, exciting news. Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are, regrettably, back together. So, we are truly living in 2002 because somehow they are dating. So God, that's um, a long time. <laughs> I will tell you now that that absolutely aged me because I was trying to think like, wow, when is it that they were together? Yeah, no, it can't be a bit like, it was obviously a while ago, but it can't be that long ago. And then I obviously found a timeline, love a timeline. And the, the dates in this were like truly harrowing because I was like, wow, I was a much a younger than I thought I was at the time. Mm-hmm. But, and yet I vividly remember it so much. So after his much publicized pandemic romance with Anna de Armas, Ben Affleck has seemingly fallen into Jennifer Lopez's but once more 17 years after they parted ways back in 2004 so the two of them began dating initially in 2001 they got engaged in 2002 they postponed their wedding in 2003 due to quote excessive media attention and then they ended things in January 2004 so they've obviously been busy since Jennifer Lopez married Mark Anthony a few years later she had two children with him they separated in 2014 Ben Affleck married Jennifer Garner in 2005 and then they divorced in 2018. They also have two or three children, I think. Since her split from Mark Anthony, Jennifer Lopez had been dating former New York Yankee uh, baseball player Alex Rodriguez to whom she was also engaged. They've been together since 2017. However, recently in April, the couple announced their split amidst uh, much discussion about Alex Rodriguez's probable infidelity. And then, but Days after this announcement, Ben Affleck was spotted visiting Jennifer Lopez's Los Angeles home. Then in May they headed to a luxury resort in Montana and a few weeks later after this Ben was then spotted visiting Jennifer in Miami over the Memorial Day weekend. So much of this has played out in the press. These two are so extremely savvy. I think it's just interesting because in the last year or so Ben Affleck has spoken quite fondly about Jennifer Lopez. He was outspoken in his belief that she should have been nominated for her, an Oscar for her performance in the film Hustlers. Um, he was on a Hollywood Reporter podcast at the start of the year which i think i might have mentioned on this podcast at some stage and he was sort of talking about the mid 2000s early 2000s like wave of paparazzi and how it very much damaged their Mm -hmm. relationship and how she was the victim of like really really horrible kind of racial attacks in the press and then he was also quoted in may this year during a jennifer lopez had an in style magazine cover story which focused on her and the interview itself was based Basically, like lots of people that have worked with her or know her just saying nice things about her. And Ben Affleck was included on that. And then last week, there were very public photos of them making out at Nobu restaurant in Malibu. So lots to unpack there. What will happen next? I think I just find this so funny. It's so odd, isn't it?
1: Firstly, when they when they were first like papped together, is that the photo series where j coming out the house looking absolutely wrecked?
0: those pictures are from the memorial day weekend cuz she looks like she looks
1: like they've had a particularly sexy tussle.
0: Yeah, and he's like awkwardly stood at the top of the stairs like He looks ah. really smug
1: and she just yeah. looks like she's had like the best time. I bet she has. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say something really crude, but anyway, yes, yeah. I'm fascinated by this because I truly wouldn't date any of my exes ever again. Sorry, no. everyone. Not even if I don't know, like either you are reuniting after 17 years and absolutely nothing has changed and you're the Mm -hmm. same people which is sad Mm -hmm. or you are reuniting and you're such drastically different people that it's like dating a completely new person i mean i just find those sorts of dynamics weird anyway when people get back together after a long period of time but i think it's just interesting to me because i was
0: so like i mean we've talked before about that kind of like early 2000s period of like celebrity gossip culture and you know Perez Hilton and all of that stuff and their relationship was definitely at a time where I was like fully entrenched in all of that so I remember I remember them popping up on gossip blogs and on like oh no they didn't and all of that and I was just like so extremely compelled by it and because their relationship at the time did like kind of play out so publicly and then the demise of their relationship played out so publicly. I just find it really fascinating that like almost 20 years later they've decided to
1: go down Do it this again. road again <laughs> it's quite hard not to approach that with a level of suspicion but yeah i mean that's probably being mean and they're just having a nice time
0: they're probably grown as people and she's definitely like an even bigger superstar than she was at the time and she's oh, also yeah. someone that's extremely media savvy so mm. i don't Do you know think ben
1: affleck has grown as a person
0: uh, I think he's hotter now than he was then, but that's just an entirely different issue. That's a separate type of gross. That's a separate thing. I mean, the issue here is that I cannot be objective because I, I think he's great. I love him. so. I just can't imagine what he's like to date. A nightmare, Steph. I imagine he's a nightmare. I, I just think that he's probably so extremely neurotic. The man has many issues and I just feel like it would be a nightmare to date him. But he also strikes me as someone that like, if Jennifer Lopez was just like, you need to do this, he's not going to be like, I'm actually fine. Oh no, I think
1: he's probably quite happy being ordered around and she's quite happy to dish it out. 100%. One hundred percent. Do you think it's sort of that? Is twenty twenty one the season for exes reuniting as well? Because didn't like Angelina Jolie get packed with Johnny Lee Miller the other day. So maybe there's a whole post pandemic thing going on.
0: What people just revisiting their like lost nineties yeah. and two thousands loves. Yeah,
1: they're like, remember the nineties? Let's do it again.
0: I mean, I haven't actually. I was going to say I think that Johnny Lee Miller's probably hotter now than he was then. But I've not. I actually too seen would any... snog
1: Johnny Lee Miller.
0: I don't know. I just think everyone's been indoors for too long and now Maybe it's
1: maybe it's a bit of that as well. Who else is gonna get back together? Who else would we like to see? I mean, I guess the gold the gold standard would be like Brad and um oh my god. Jennifer Brad, Aniston. Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. Imagine yeah. I was like brad and rachel <laughs> brad and rachel i mean um, she is Rachel. that's like that would be like uh, top tier wouldn't it if they got back together which i oh. genuinely think will never happen but
0: another one i would like to see but i quite like ava mendez so i don't really want her and ryan gosling to split up but oh, yeah. i think that like if ryan gosling and rachel McAdams got back together i
1: think and that just I, would, like a little
0: I would believe in anything if that happened
1: that would be pretty beautiful as well wouldn't it yeah
0: I just, there are many people that, many like iconic former loves that
1: if they got back together would be great. But maybe that's a future topic we can discuss. Like, yeah. Celebrity couples that we love more than anything. Yeah. How long do you think this relationship's going to last? We're in June now, aren't we? I think <laughs> that. Will they be having Christmas together?
0: I would love paparazzi pictures of the Affleck Lopez family having a blended Christmas. I don't think it will happen. But I would like to see them on a red carpet together at some stage in the next six months. That would be fun.
1: Have either of them got films coming out in the next six months?
0: Oh, Ben Ben Affleck was filming in Boston, wasn't he? But I don't think that's going to come out this year. I don't know. If they made it to Oscar
1: season, I would love that. That'd be pretty good going, wouldn't it? Maybe they'll make it to Met Gala. We'll see. Well, imagine that. Baffleck and J-Lo at Met Gala with like Timmy dancing in the background. That's, uh, That's the one to hope for, friends. Whilst we're on the topic of Ben Affleck... And JLo looking absolutely wrecked. Go on. I think this is probably some of the most podcast specific content I have seen in twenty twenty one so far. But I am gonna preface it by saying it's like extremely not suitable for work. So don't I don't know, don't be I don't know why you'd be listening to this in your workplace, everyone will be judging you, but definitely a head a headphones thing. So I've put the title as Batman loves sipping that watermelon sugar. I know. So last week, the internet exploded over the news that DC had stopped Justin Halpin and Patrick Schumacher, who are the co-creators and exec producers of the animated Harley Quinn series, from featuring a scene where Batman gives oral sex to Catwoman. So uh, the quote, I believe, was um, DC was like, you can't do that. You absolutely cannot do that. Heroes don't do that. So, reason being, according to DC, uh, we sell consumer toys for heroes. It's hard to sell a toy if Batman is also going down on someone. So, uh, everyone obviously went bananas. A, at the idea of, quote unquote, heroes don't do that. And then B, because of a, a, a big ensuing debate around which iterations of Batman would or wouldn't go down on a woman. Uh, so, Zack Snyder tweeted some fan art of Batman and Catwoman with simply the word canon. <laughs> Attached to it. All right, Zach, no one asked you. Uh, Val Kilmer got involved. I didn't even know he had Twitter, to be honest. And uh, he tweeted, does he or doesn't he? I wanted him to answer. I didn't want him to pose the question. And then there were a couple of other funny things where uh, someone on Twitter, someone called Rear Butcher on Twitter had said, why would Batman's whole bottom face be open if he didn't do oral? Ridiculous. <laughs> And then there was one uh, other really good thing that I pasted, which was an anecdote about Adam West, who was the 1960s Batman, and Frank Gorshin. Did you read this? No, I didn't. By um, a user called Amanda Wong, who posted this story about when they got kicked out of an orgy. So uh, apparently they went to a Hollywood party. And uh, it says, uh, we were kind of laughing and having a few beers and said, let's go over there. We walked in and it was an orgy. So I immediately went into the Batman character and Frank went into the Riddler character because we were getting the big giggles. It was so funny to us what we walked into and we were kicked out. We were expelled from the orgy. Anyway, there were just so many good Batman anecdotes and hot debates going around on Twitter for a couple of days. I just thought it was so just it just worked for this podcast completely i th-
0: I just really wish that Zack snyder hadn't waded into all of
1: no one asked for zach did they
0: <sighs> no one ever needs Zack snyder's opinion about <laughs> anything and then obviously he had to just be like so i'm the expert here i'm just gonna throw did he google that fa- he didn't even
1: credit that fan art that's the problem No, i, I know with it. that like, was some, some good on. exposure for someone there a young artist well it just proves that he doesn't actually care <laughs> I think my other favourite thing was that um, my colleague Simon mentioned this to me at work on Slack <laughs> yeah. and was like, yeah. are you going to be discussing this on the podcast? And I was like, is it bad that I'm fairly certain that April and I have had a conversation very similar to this about Batman already prior mm. to this happening? Mm. Anyway, let us rule once and for all which Batmans in film would go down on Catwoman. (laughs) And I'm just doing the obvious ones because I just don't, I'm just not going to spend a lot of time talking about Adam West here. So uh, we're going to go from Michael Keaton onwards. Michael Keaton, does he or doesn't he? Um, I've written that those eyebrows and that smile suggest yes. (laughs) Michael Keaton is so hot and he's in a film with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, so... He would have to do it, and he'd have to be good at it. Yeah, fine. That's a yes. Fair. Val Kilmer. I think he's probably weird about it. Do you? Yeah. I thought, much to my distaste, that he probably <laughs> likes it. <laughs> distaste is the wrong word. But I think it might be a yes. But I'm, I'm not. I, I can't comment on the quality. George Clooney. With a massive smile on his face, yeah, of course. Oh my God, we're so different. I think absolutely not. Do you not? No, I think George Clooney's Batman absolutely would not. Absolute pleaser. I think he's an absolute pleaser. I just don't think he wouldn't. Christian Bale. I was on I was on the fence about this one. I've just written, I really hope so, from a personal point of view. But... I put, does he have Colin Farrell vibes? <laughs> so... <laughs> Part of me thinks he would never, Christian Bale Batman would never lower himself to such a thing. But part of me also thinks he would absolutely adore it. So the problem for me is that like uh, Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne in my head just merges like so perfectly with his Patrick Bateman's, So I just feel like he would. He probably would, wouldn't he? Yeah. And Mm. it might be a bit scary. (laughs) Ben Affleck. Uh, Only if you give it back. Fair I probably think, as with most Ben Affleck properties, (laughs) he's probably too sad. (laughs) But um, there you go. (laughs) And the one we will be agreed on, Rob Pattinson. Yeah, is full obsessed with it. Absolutely a thousand percent. Thousand, thousand percent. He's I mean, I think Batman generally as a character... Not that I have great, great knowledge of Batman, but I've spent a bit of time with him, especially in the past six months, because we did a bit of a Batman (laughs) rewatch. I just think he would. I think it's ridiculous to say otherwise.
0: I just think that a grown man that runs around in like a bat costume has probably got some things he's into.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I did love that idea about like, why else would the whole bottom of his face be open to the elements? It's a given. Anyway, we've wrapped that up nice, (laughs) nicely. Let's move on.
0: So moving on swiftly to some things that we've been enjoying of late, we thought we'd start with TV and Mayor of Easttown. It's getting a lot of discussion online and it's definitely been something that we've enjoyed. And are now it's over, we thought we'd give it a little bit of a recap. So if you're unfamiliar with it, Mayor of Easttown is an American crime drama series created by Brad Inglesby, um, who did Out of the Furnace and The Way Back, um, which premiered on HBO on April the 18th and on Now TV here in the UK. It stars Kate Winslet as a detective investigating a murder in a small town near philadelphia the ensemble cast includes gene smart guy pierce julian nicholson and gory rice david denman evan peters sosi bacon and john douglas thompson amongst others all seven episodes were directed by Cla- craig zabel who has worked on the leftovers and westworld as well as some other tv things um so a brief synopsis of the show it's in a suburb of philadelphia the titular east town a detective named mercy investigates the recent murder of a teenage mother while trying to keep her own life from falling apart part. Mayor is a local hero having been the star of a high school basketball championship game 25 years ago. She's also been unable to solve the case of another missing young girl for a year leading to many in the community to doubt her detective skills. Her personal troubles include a divorce, a son lost to suicide and a custody battle with her ex-heroin addict former daughter in law over Mayor's grandson. So I guess... It's important to, I just feel like we're inevitably going to drop some spoilers in this and it feels like a lot of people are kind of revisiting it or at least visiting it for the first time at the moment. So if you don't want to have the show kind of dissected or ruined in parts then maybe stick a pin in it here. So this is our spoiler warning. So we will timestamp as well in the show notes absolutely so I suppose if we just begin with our early expectations on watching the first episode or so from my perspective I was really hyped going into this I mm. really like Kate Winslet I'd heard great things about the show on a couple of podcasts where they were going to be covering it and they'd seen advanced screeners of it I was also just really looking forward to having a weekly show for a mm. while I know we'd yeah. had the I, I personally had had the Marvel stuff but it had been a while since we'd had kind of a an hbo an event an event something to actually turn on and kind of you know do week to week as opposed to binging so that was my expectations going in how did you sort of feel in advance of it and then after that initial first episode
1: Yeah, um, I was really looking forward to it. I think Kate Winslet was like a huge draw because Mm. I I don't know if I've really seen her in any television, actually. But we have seen her in a few things recently and she's always obviously very good. And I kind of, based on the marketing alone, I saw a lot of bus billboards and things. I kind of expected it to be this kind of dark and gritty, whodunit, set in a small community. So it's already ticking a lot of boxes. Um, And I think that first episode does try and use those kind of mystery tropes and sort of, I get not lure you in because that makes it sound like they're playing tricks on you. I don't think they are. They're sort of playing with those tropes, aren't they? Yeah. There's a lot of red herrings in that first episode. So you know that, you know, by the end of the episode, you're going to have a dead body. Someone's going to die. And you know that we've probably spent some time in that episode with, you know, a number of suspects, which, you know, was really enjoyable. And I think, I think I brought with me, an expectation that it would be good. But I had anticipated almost like with properties like Twin Peaks. I was kind of expecting like a, a horrific story, a town riddled with kind of conspiracy and corruption, you know, like true detective-esque. Like, yes, yeah, is yeah. it a cover up by the church? You know, I remember yeah. saying to you like, oh, you know, the deacon, like maybe it's something to do with the church. Maybe it's maybe it's going to be another kind of a occult thing. But there was a lot yeah. of conspiracy kind of going on. Um, And it played into all of that in the first episode. I was really taken, as you mentioned, with sort of like the sort of the setting and the community of characters, that whole small town community vibe that I think we always sort of blab on about as something Mm. that we find really interesting, particularly in American shows. And it was all kind of set up there as something we've kind of experienced before. And I definitely brought some sort of genre specific expectations to the table with me. Yeah. And then after that first episode, it's... Quite clear that things aren't what they seem. And then from then onwards, I was just really impressed with the way that things were turned on their head. Is that kind of similar to you from watching that first episode?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that first episode does a really good job of like establishing the community and the setting mm. of East Town as a whole. And I also think you get a really kind of good sense of like who Mary is, what her family oh. setup is, how people in the community kind of treat her you get an insight into things that have happened that she's sort of struggling to deal with in the past so you know that unsolved disappearance mm. of a girl mm. that's kind of dogging her and it's making people locally doubt her um, I think it's really interesting that you mention True Detective and Twin Peaks there because I think that those were sort of my reference points mm-hmm. I suppose and I, I thought that by making those comparisons like I was being lazy but I do think that particularly in the marketing like it gave off such true detective
1: vibes didn't it i do think it's deliberate and again it's not like a manipulation but it's kind of i think the creators know what our background with this Mm. kind of genre is TV is like, and that we'll be bringing that baggage with us, if that makes
0: sense. Absolutely. There's a sense of familiarity with it. And I think that, like, the thing I liked about that first season of True Detective, especially, is Mm. you get a kind of sense of that, like, strangeness of that particular area and that community. And it felt so regionally specific. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the the things I really liked about Mayor of East Town is that it's so regionally specific. And I suppose it, I suppose, like, Twin Peaks is the same in that regard. Very true. it's, It's extremely tied to. Like the Pacific Northwest and like the kind of strangeness and, and the nuances of that particular, like, regional area within mm-hmm. the United States. And obviously, like, we say that as complete outsiders. Mm. I have visited the Pacific Northwest where Twin Peaks is set, but I, you know, like, I've been to Philadelphia, but I've not been to like this specific area area of Delaware County so I can't speak to whether actually like it's regionally apt but the general consensus that I seem to get from like the majority of the writing and criticism that I've read on the show is that actually that's one of the very much spot on things about the yeah. show and one of the things that the show nails and even as an, a relative outsider that came across from that first episode and I think that's so rare and it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that's something that we always kind of like and buy into in shows and that was definitely one of the things that like I was immediately taken with and one of the things that I was really hoping that they were going to explore and expand upon
1: going forward. Yeah, everyone's lives are so intertwined, aren't mm. they, in that community? it's There's just like thousands of crossovers between families and friends and it's just, you know, everyone's in each other's pockets. And you've reminded me as well, you mentioned that about the characterization sort of in the first episode, that you're right, it was like those characters have so much sort of like... They're so well-rounded by the end hmm. of that first episode. Yeah. Like, Mare is incredibly well-rounded, but you get a really, like almost quite a detailed sense of how, yeah, like how her family dynamic works. And, you know, who these other people are and how a lot of these families and lives are connected. And, like, I felt like that was created and kind of mapped out in an hour, really. Just, like, absolutely fantastic. Like, so impressive.
0: That feels rare as well. I feel like that sense of place is so integral into buying Mm -hmm. into the story. And I think immediately from that first episode, you do get like a sense of understanding the area the reasons that the people are kind of there the lives they lead obviously you don't necessarily get it in a, in a huge amount of depth but for like a first no. episode i was quite taken with actually like how like oh okay i get a really good sense of like what this particular area is like the the close knit the fact that you don't necessarily know the ins and outs of like who is related to mm. what and or who but you get a sense that actually like these people are like living on top of each other and actually like you know mayor and Laurie. Have lived there their entire lives, and mm-hmm. I think that like you know by by bringing in that kind of like st- initial storyline of of the high school and and Mare having been like a basketball yeah. you know star, you get a sense of like oh okay cool so she's obviously grown up in this area she's gone to school in this area she's got married in this area she's so embedded isn't she she's yeah. so embedded yeah and like but everyone is it's not like she's just like the one stalwart of the local area it's that like generationally these people are like born there raised there die there yeah absolutely and just on that i do think that's like i don't know i think it's that's so underutilized in in programs now as like a, a, a sort of a, a structure and as a framing yeah. device. Mm-hmm. So that was something that I was just um, sort of immediately taken with. And I suppose that leads on to talking a little bit more about the characters. So obviously we've kind of talked about Mayor, the titular Mayor of East Town, played wonderfully by Kate Winslet. It's funny, you mentioned that you've not seen any of Kate Winslet on TV. And I haven't either, actually. I know that she worked on Mildred Pierce mm. a few yeah. years ago with Guy Pierce, who also does crop up in this. But I don't know. It just felt interesting to sort of see her work over a course of episodes as opposed to like condensed in a film and I thought it was really interesting actually just to see the development of Mare as a character and see her work like in a more long-form way and I, I don't know Kate Winslet is an actress who I've like loved for many many years but I was just really blown away by like how well she became the character of Mare
1: I mean, this is easily my favourite Kate Winslet role ever. Like, I think she's great, but I do think she's astonishing in this. And she so inhabits that character that I do... I almost feel like I can't pull them apart in my mind now. Like, she mm. is Mare. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. And, and also to, to have someone like Kate Winslet, who is such a face and such a name, to forget who... Not forget who she is, but she became that character. You forget that you're watching Kate Winslet. Yeah. Yeah. As a a huge celebrity, really, that just completely fell away for me. Yeah, I'm the same. And it's really funny, actually, because
0: obviously there is this like wave of like big name Hollywood actors going into TV now Mm -hmm. in a way that never used to happen and sometimes it works so well and I completely like buy into it as a whole but so often it is just sort of like you're watching something and you're like like for example if Brad Pitt did television yeah the entire time you would just be going
1: this "This is Brad Brad Pitt Pitt. that's Brad That's Brad
0: Pitt yeah that's Brad Pitt
1: I do that often, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, completely. Like I, for example, Big Little Lies. Oh, it's Reese Witherspoon.
0: <laughs> I really like Big Little Lies, but like that's Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, I'm not, it is. I, I'm not convinced that that's the character. It's Reese of... Witherspoon playing a character in a TV yeah, show, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. But I, I'm really glad that you also had that experience of just like being able to just not necessarily pick apart the fact that like that's Kate Winslet. Like to me, she's just meh.
1: Like that's she, meh. Absolutely, yeah. And it that, that feels, again, Quite rare. I don't know. Just such a fully formed character, and we yeah. got to know her so well. Like as a character study, we got to know her so so well through yeah. what is it? Seven episodes? It's just like, seven. It's, it's really seven not many episodes, episodes at no. all. But I mean, I think every like. I don't think there's a bad performance in this show. Like even the smallest parts are pretty kind of stand out. And like, who the fuck saw this performance from Evan Peters coming? Like, who the fuck? It's really funny, isn't it? Because I do feel like every single
0: character in this show is like they are their character and yeah. there are definitely people within the show that I sort of wish had been developed more so like Angori Rice as Siobhan mm. I thought she was brilliant and I think she's so good she has a lot to do as Mare's daughter who's sort of dealing with all of the grief around the loss of her brother and and, and we learned so much about what happened to her alongside mm. all of that I sort of felt like I wanted more but that wasn't mm. her
1: fault I think it was just the fact that like that's not the story we're being told she yeah. wasn't a focus that whole family actually the whole family dynamic of having like four generations under yeah. one roof with and with Jean Smart as Helen as well like I just I loved spending time with that family like yeah. around their kind of like breakfast dining tables just
0: there were pockets of it where it's like I just wish like we could have had more time with like I would mm-hmm. love to have had more time with like Jean Smart as Helen and just to like pick her brains and I would yeah. love to have understood like the dynamic between like like Frank and Mare and like, mm. you know, like he lives, they their gardens, like he can walk to her house. It's weird, isn't it? He's just letting yeah. himself in the
1: house to like borrow herbs.
0: But I will say you just, you understand that dynamic though. Like I just felt like I kind of, it goes back to the idea it. of how you immediately get it. You buy mm. into the dynamic. You understand that like, oh, actually, yeah, it makes sense that like they would just still have like mm. Mare and Frank would split up, but they would still have this extremely close relationship, obviously because of Drew, their grandson. Mm. But also because they do live so close, so it's hard for them to avoid each other. Um, just coming back to Evan Peters, though, I think that like this was the thing going in for me that I'd sort of forgotten that he was yeah. in this. Yeah, and then he turns up in episode two as detective colin zabel who's is an outside detective so he's outside of the east town police department he's brought in to help mayor out and but he he understands that kind of small town working dynamic Mm -hmm. because he himself is from like a local area but he's trying really hard to get everyone into everyone's good graces and like evan peters as an actor is someone who like i've enjoyed in things oh yeah i think he's great in the first season of American Horror Story, yeah, like- perfectly enjoyable. I will wholly go to bat for him as Tate Langdon. He's been in a few films that I've enjoyed, like turning out good performances. But like this
1: for me, and I know for you as well, was just like... Absolutely wild. Like, where did ab- it come from? I did not see this coming at no. all. It was like, holy shit, we have to take Evan Peters really seriously as an actor. Like when there was loads of chatter around that scene when he's like drunk in the bar oh with me. Who plays a drunk person that well? So
0: convinced. In my head, he was just fucked. Like, he was blotto. The best, possibly
1: the best drunk person
0: I've ever seen on screen. It's just, he was, he was just brilliant in this. And I actually really hope going forward that, like, he does more of this less Ryan Murphy.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: same. This is actually the thing I kept coming back to was like actually if you get him out of the Ryan Murphy arena, yeah. he's really good. Yeah, he could do some. I hope
1: this opens like a lot more doors for him and God of... I
0: hope so. The dynamic between him and Kate Winslet like towards the end was just like absolutely stellar. There were like multiple yeah. occasions where I texted you just being like if like this happens i am going to like
1: if these two snog i will die the chemistry the chemistry and you're convinced so convinced by it yeah so convinced by that i I, like as we said like these are the type of like tying in the the strength of characters and this the really really vivid sense of place like they're the type of genre stories as like i particularly really love Mm, like when i talk about stephen king like it's because of these things. Yes. I mean, obviously it's telling a story and there's a kind of mystery who dull it element, but it's all of this other surrounding stuff, which is what keeps me in. And I just think they did such a brilliant job. I think you're right about sort of, maybe if we could have given Siobhan a bit more space and the use of Guy Pearce, that I think we now understand why Guy Pearce was there, as in like he was plugging a gap, someone called in a favour or whatever, great. It's a slightly odd role admittedly uh when it came to like sort of i don't know thinking about things to sort of discuss in
0: this reflection of the season as a whole i'd sort of like somehow forgotten that guy pierce was in it because that entire plot line is just seemingly seems to sort of serve a function to like remind mayor that there is life beyond east town like like she could leave this town and actually have a life without all of this baggage and he sort of serves the function of coming in and being like hi you're great like you
1: could just move Sweet. with me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't mad at it. I like Guy Pearce. I love them together.
1: Yeah. I think it was almost like an that was like an unintentional red herring as in I think because he's such a celebrity it, mm. people suddenly had an expectation that he was going to play like a really pivotal role and then he didn't this is the thing I was going to say actually
0: is that like I feel like if it had been any other actor that wasn't as famous or as notable like if it had just been like I don't know a recognisable face but not anyone that comes oh, with yeah. the stardom I think that there would have been less of an inclination to think that he was somehow involved but I think you did it exactly as I did initially which was like oh it's Guy Pearce he's a big name he must be something that's really he's
1: central to the story yeah why exactly. else would he be in it he does not do a bit part apparently he does he was just bored during the pandemic <laughs> yeah just great why not hanging out with Kate Winslet but apart from that like I, I really struggled to fault this actually
0: yeah completely um were there any other performances in the show that you kind of were particularly taken with or that
1: you were surprised by I mean as I said I, I do think pretty much everyone was like amazing. I really liked Julianne Nicholson as well yes. as Laurie. She was great. Especially because that's a, a kind of character that obviously, you know, you are introduced to her early on and you're aware of her and her story is told, but she's obviously brought into focus a lot more as the, the season progresses. And I just thought she was phenomenal. And again, like great chemistry with Kate Winslet. Yes.
0: Yeah, I was really convinced that they were like long time friends and they would known each other for a long time. Do you time know what? And...
1: Friendship is, and I'm sure we've said this before, like friendship, Especially, like, from my perspective, like, female friendship can be a very hard thing to, like, get right sometimes. Like, the chemistry has to be there. And as someone who has felt those friendships, I can just tell when it's not true and when it doesn't work. And this felt so natural. I was wholly convinced by it. Um,
0: the only other person that I just wanted to mention, just because we'd mentioned Evan Peters in Ryan Murphy things, is the kid that plays Dylan, so Jack Mulhern. <laughs> yeah. He, like, is genuinely terrifying, yep. but, like, was absolutely giving me Tate Langdon American Horror Story vibes. Yeah.
1: Do you think he was like, hey, Evan, give me some pointers? I really like... 100%. Liked- hope so. I really enjoyed your work <laughs> Absolute in <the> psychopath. <laughs> I felt like pretty much everyone was likeable to some degree apart from maybe him and definitely brianna who was like the worst <laughs> human being on earth
0: terrifying but that's why her performance is so good though because yeah. i genuinely was like yes i've unfortunately met girls like that that are like genuinely horror you are evil <laughs> but like you are evil yeah. um so i suppose just moving on from the performances to the show as a whole and, and then perhaps the finale was there anything that you particularly liked or that worked really really well with the finale was there anything that you Faulted. Whereas, there anything else in the kind of show episode-wise that you that sort of yeah. particularly stood
1: out to you? Well, I mean, with the finale, so I'm going to spoil it by talking about it. Like, there was so much speculation beforehand, which is obviously what is going to happen with a show like this, where yeah. it's a kind of you know who done it reveal of the killer. I mean, it's a, it's really interestingly paced this show because again, like your expectations are not met in that we we find out who's been abducting sort of these young women in kind of of you know episode five so it's not who you'd expect nor does it tie into the story in the way you'd expect and you kind of expect that to be the climax of that episode yeah. and it's not and you're kind of the way this whole show is paced just keeps you on the hook the whole time and with that final episode like I know we'd both spent a lot of time speculating about who it could be and I'd kind of said like if it is John I'm quite happy with that like sometimes yeah not a simple explanation but like sometimes the the obvious not explanation obvious. Yeah. is yeah, fine yeah. I watched this with you and had it spoilt by Stephen King, which I just had to note because I cannot fucking believe he spoilt this for me. I was livid. I think the
0: thing about it was so funny was that, like, we'd made real efforts to just sort of like, I'm going to mute.
1: Oh, all I'd words. muted everything.
0: I'd muted everything. I'd managed to try and stay offline that day. Yep. It happened that you were coming round for dinner and we decided like, oh, we'll just watch it together because it's there. You know, like we'd, I feel like collectively we would going a do job. And oh, I'd,
1: so hard.
0: I had definitely fallen down the like internet theory, Reddit, mm-hmm. like trying to figure out where it was going to go. Like there were so many different sort of strands and I had initially avoided that kind of speculation because I was just mm-hmm. kind of enjoying, like you said, the pacing of it. It was really, really working for me mm-hmm. and I didn't want to ruin it because I was like so invested. But like, I don't know, I think probably about 24 hours before the end, I was like, no, I'm just going to get into the theory territory. Because because we'd like been discussing it. We'd been mulling it over, throwing things back and forth. And I was like, well, actually, I just want to see what like the general consensus is. But apart from that, like I'd managed to avoid any
1: real spoilers. And I really, really felt for you that like of all the people. Uncle Stevie, about 30 seconds before we watched it as well. And he honestly thought he wasn't spoiling it because he tweeted something really inane like, Oh, um, I'm not going to spoil it, but I just want to say my theory was right. But he posted the day before saying, I think it's Ryan. So it's like, obviously you've spoiled it now, you idiot. I was livid. So really angry about that. I think we both agreed or discussed beforehand how we didn't want it to be Ryan. And then, of course, it was. Interestingly, that that kind of the kind of initial reveal with John and, you know, things kind of being tied together and John going to being arrested and blah, blah, blah happened so early in that episode. (gasps) We were both looking at the time going, there's like half an hour left.
0: (laughs) It's actually what I think is really great about the pacing of the show Mm -hmm. is that actually the finale was, of course, the finale. But I actually think that the penultimate episode, like, I think more traditionally like that would have been the last episode yes and yes. I think that they paced this finale so well that by actually like getting the stuff out of the way early on in that last episode mm-hmm. it just gave room to like this really really interesting development and like th- almost the aftermath and I think that yeah. I feel like you so rarely get in these like crime procedural yeah. you know prestige dramas you so rarely get like you're so right Yeah, a glimpse at the aftermath
1: yeah yeah, and rather than like that, that's who it is. They're arrested. The end. It's like the no, end. you know obviously we want to know who did this and how it happened but also there's like all this stuff that we need to address with Mare and like there's so much else going on so we had like so much of the episode left so we knew something else was coming and like after spending time with the actual outcome and what happens with Ryan I do understand that actually it ties the story together. It does, doesn't it? Really nicely and I can see I can see actually as Stephen King as someone who writes those kind of characters he probably understands that it, i think he could probably foresee that by confronting ryan mayor would have to then you know confront yeah. what happened with her son and it would arc really perfectly with yeah. laurie's story as well and they're kind of you know their friendship and their lives are in parallel together as mothers so i think it it gave like a satisfying twist for anyone who wanted like a, a surprise how hey, you didn't see this coming kind of murder mystery but it did as you say the we had that composure at the end and we got to spend some time with Mare and we got to see some healing happen for her and quite a bit of healing happening across the community as well, which is if they just kind of ended with, you know, the big reveal and that is it and Mare has solved the case, it just it wouldn't have addressed like the actual important things within the show.
0: No, I feel like it would have felt really disingenuous and I feel Mm -hmm. like the finale itself actually went beyond that immediate solving of the Mm -hmm. case and the discovery of the girls because I do feel like it's actually more about, like you say, dealing with the weight of a situation, like almost like the baggage that the community puts on you Mm -hmm. and then also Mm -hmm. the the baggage that the community has as a whole. It felt like it was a, I don't know, I think the show generally felt like a character study of a person, Mm Mare, who is dealing with like so many complex things like the build-up of all of this grief and loss you know her dealing with her son's passing and I think you're right that Stephen King as a person probably understands this more than anyone because I like I wasn't necessarily convinced by initially by Ryan's role as the murderer but I understood that it's a really interesting way to look at What happens when you lose a child? When you lose Mm -hmm. a son, from two two different perspectives, you know, like Mm -hmm. Mare loses Kevin because he unfortunately takes his own life, and then Laurie loses her son by proxy, Mm -hmm. almost at the hands of her best friend. And I think that, like, as a character study, as a whole, as a look at a community, I just felt like, as, as a final episode, I think it's funny because I feel like we so often talk about last episodes of things that we enjoy not necessarily (laughs) yeah yeah, not necessarily fulfilling or ticking the boxes that we went and actually like this is the first time in ages Mm -hmm. that I've not like gotten to the end of a show that I've absolutely adored and gone like oh they're stuck they're landing
1: such a good episode and when we were talking earlier about like our expectations going in and how with you know with things like Twin Peaks like I had this idea that you know, they're going to whoever it is, whatever has happened it's because there is, you know, a thread of evil that is running through this town for whatever reason. And whoever does, you know, it's an evil story. You know, this person has died. They've been murdered. Something awful has happened. And then to find out at the end that actually it's just like a really sad accident. I don't know. It just it it meant that the kind of the twist with Ryan did work because I think my gut reaction initially was like, oh, I don't want it to be a Ryan. You know, like he's some sort of evil Damien-esque omen, you know, serial killer child. But actually, as you say, the fact that what happened is because he was, you know, he was angry and frustrated. He got himself into this situation. This accident happened. And then Mare has to be the one that has to compose herself and go and arrest this child who is the child of her best friend and you know the way the roles are reversed there where then Laurie's life is literally falling apart and Mary is having to be there for her it I afterwards I was kind of like actually yeah that works yeah that yeah. works perfectly and it also means that we kind of we get to end well particularly especially with May going up into the attic at the end which was like the perfect oh, final gosh. moment yeah you know it does offer like a level of hope um, yeah. and a level of healing that we don't also always get out of these shows like no. sometimes you're kind of left feeling like that was yeah that
0: was grim, no. wasn't it like i think i think you're completely right and i think actually like if we talk about The fact that the show, like, itself covers this kind of idea of, like, generational trauma and, like, the Mm. things you inherit from those around you and stuff. Like, everything that Ryan does is just an unfortunate accident at the hands of, like, the stuff that his family and his father is involved in that he's obviously dealing with paulie because he just doesn't understand it. he's a kid you know like he's mm. a kid and he's upset because of something that his dad's done yeah. but now this is just something that's going to like follow him forever
1: yeah yeah and i think i read somewhere no listened somewhere there was an interview with brad inglesby who was talking about the theme of mayor like the ultimate theme of mayor being of mercy which i really liked as well and kind of ties in with those i don't know you know hope and healing and you know the ultimate act of mercy which is very difficult and as you said like ties in with I mean there's like mothers and motherhood absolutely everywhere in this show like everyone is a mother of someone and is struggling with a son or a child or a mother like pretty much every single character and as you say there is that sort of like endless trauma being passed down and endless battles being fought and it is that idea of like showing mercy for others or being shown mercy i don't know i just thought it was brilliant
0: i was really blown away by it and i think that like i you know we started by saying that our expectations were like sort of high but not like sky Mm. high and it was just very nice to get to the end of it and go like actually do you know what I don't think I could have wanted anything more from like a seven episode series like that. So tight. And I think with bearing that in mind as well, I just don't want a second season.
1: I really hope they just leave it. I think you and I are similar in that sometimes when you're delivered such a, I mean, I won't say a perfect product, but like a a product of such high quality, like I'm quite happy just revisiting that again. I just don't Mm. want to risk it. I don't want to risk it with a season 2 and it is tied up so wonderfully. I just just because I'd like to spend more time with those characters doesn't mean I should, I don't think.
0: I just don't know what you would do with it going forward because I just feel like you it's established at the end of the the series that like Mayor quite obviously is not going to leave East Town. No. And I don't know how much additional like I would do like another
1: Scooby-Doo mystery for her to solve. Uh,
0: how much additional pain and anguish could you like put on to a small town like Easter, yeah. mm-hmm. you know so yeah. i just i feel like it served its function in like such a nice cohesive way in seven episodes that it like it should just be left yeah you know 100% um i think that the emmy announcements are looming soon so nominations and i just feel like this is 100% going to like snag loads of nominations for everyone involved and and rightfully
1: so i think i hope so it's easily my favorite tv watch of the year so far So something else um, we got to watch recently, and we got to watch together in the cinema. We did. uh, It's only the second time we've been to the cinema this year, Uh, and we got to watch this on a very hot Sunday afternoon whilst everyone else was watching football, so the cinema was nice and quiet. A Quiet Place Part 2. So this is a horror film and the sequel to the 2018 film A Quiet Place, which was hugely popular. I think it grossed over $300 million worldwide, which isn't... It's not quite its standards, but it's pretty pretty damn successful for a horror film. It's written, produced, and directed by John Krasinski, who also directed the first film. It stars Emily Blunt, Millicent Simmons, uh, and Noah Jupe, who reprised their roles from the first film, as well as uh, adding in Cillian Murphy and. Jamin Hunsu and Krasinski of course also returns from the first film for a flashback sequence so the premise of this film just briefly following the deadly events at home the Abbott family must now face the terrors of the outside world as they continue their fight for survival in silence forced to venture into the unknown they quickly realize that the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path what a nice premise I didn't write that so Paramount Pictures began development of the sequel in April 2018, following the box office and critical success of the first film. And by the following August, Krasinski was writing the film and was hired to direct The sequel was ultimately produced on a budget of 61 million, um, which was three times the original 17 million. It had its world premiere in New York City on the 8th of March, 2020. And then, after a year of postponements due to COVID, it was theatrically released in the US on the 28th of May. Interestingly, the film was actually postponed from April this year to September due to surging COVID cases in the US in particular. But then it was moved back up and we saw it the other week. So this means that it is the first film post-pandemic that has been moved back up rather than pushed back so the film has set several box office records so far including the biggest opening weekend of the covid 19 pandemic and it's grossed 222 million dollars worldwide making it the fifth highest grossing film of 2021 i believe it's behind f9 sure great fun good for them good for fans of the uh, i was going to call it the fantastic Four. (laughs) There. brilliant good for fans of fast and furious uh, so let's before we dive in let's talk briefly about our relationship to the film and the characters so the first film A Quiet Place uh, I think I watched this with you so based on my uh, letterbox
0: logging a classic <laughs> classic Lockdown. tale there and um, I watched the first film at your house at the end of 2019 I didn't see it at the cinema but we watched it at your house because I think it must have been ahead of the news that the second one would be coming out in the spring of 2020. Obviously that didn't happen, but I'm pretty sure that's why we watched it. Because it was like, oh, okay, cool. It's coming out in the new year. Should probably catch up with this. I was really surprised that I liked it. Not because I'm adverse to horror generally, but just because I don't really care about John Krasinski. Yeah, totally fair. I did not watch The American Office. So I have seen him in like just random stuff, but I did find him quite attractive in the film because he had a beard which he doesn't have most of the time the beard makes him hot i will not hear otherwise retrospectively though i do wish that i'd seen it in the cinema because i did enjoy watching it in your house but i do sort of think that like watching a film like that is so atmospheric and obviously Mm -hmm. that was something i did take away from when we went to the cinema to see the second part so actually i sort of wish that i'd seen it in the cinema when it did come out but you know apart from that i had a good time with it you know it was a nice a very interesting premise I mean I'm not a horror film expert so this is not me speaking out of turn but like actually it just felt like slightly different in terms of like what it was doing and I think that and what I mean by that is like it uses the Abbott family and like the dynamic that they have so obviously having a, a child that has no hearing so they already know how to use american sign language so mm. actually that gets around the kind of narrative structure of like oh we can't make don't you know, and that just felt like quite nice and refreshing compared to a lot of other stuff that i'd seen so that was my
1: expectations and my previous mm. kind of experience with the film i mean i saw i did see it at the cinema and then i saw it with you at home So I do remember seeing it at the cinema and I really enjoyed it. Like, I didn't have any expectations um, and I was very fond of it. Like, I thought it was really, like, as you mentioned, sort of quite an original premise, Hmm. very engaging, very tense. I think it's always great to see like a horror film get mainstream success like that. It it did warm me to John Krasinski and Emily Blunt as a kind of working team and as a couple. So I, I thought they did really well together on it. See, this is the thing, because I
0: I really like Emily Blunt. Mm. And so actually, for me, my context of John Krasinski is is simply as Emily Blunt's husband, which I husband quite like. Husband of Emily Blunt. Yeah,
1: husband of Emily Blunt. Well, it's so often the other way around. Yeah. So it's nice to have Emily Blunt's husband, John Krasinski. <laughs> um, I think it's quite interesting as well that, John approached that well especially the first film as someone who doesn't engage with the horror genre like mm. it's not his thing at all so I thought that was quite interesting and as you say like it does offer something quite different to most films through the use of sound and sort of the foregrounding of a deaf character and sound is so integral to like any film we d- I yeah. think it's sort of underutilized sometimes yeah I think a lot of people were, like, using the word groundbreaking for the first film a lot. And I'm just saying, like, Mike Flanagan's Hush came out two years before this. and Yeah, that's what you know. I was going
0: to say, actually. That's the only thing, that other thing that I could think of. And I haven't seen Hush, but I'm aware of Hush. And I know mm-hmm. that it came up, like, when you went to see the first
1: mm-hmm. film. I Do you remember you referencing it when you were yeah. telling me about it? It's a great film. It's a really great film. And again, just uses, you know sound or lack of sound in a very clever way it's very different to a quiet place but and i think they do they both do like brilliantly with it so Mm -hmm. but I just am a bit reluctant to use the word groundbreaking which has been used a lot because I don't think it's the first film to do this no even though it is a very good film Um, yeah so credit where credit's due to lots of other films that have probably played with the same idea as well beforehand what were your expectations of this like when the sequel was announced and also going in to see the film um,
0: in terms of the actual announcement of the, s- the sequel, my resounding feeling was like, does there really need to be another one? Oh, no, I no. sort of liked how the first one just ends on a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Like it just ends with them in the basement of their house, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Where they've just discovered the fact that the sound of the hearing aid against the yes. speaker can make this noise which the alien things are susceptible to. So you just sort of see them. And I think Emily Blunt, like grabs a gun doesn't she and then Mm -hmm. that's it and i i just thought actually that that was quite a good ending it tells you enough doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely and i sort of like the implied kind of tension there that you sort of think like actually they might be all right but will Mm -hmm. they be all right and i i personally didn't think like oh what's going to happen beyond this like i must desperately know (laughs) also a big thing that happens in the first film
1: is that john krasinski dies yeah so and it is a film very much about what is about the family dynamic? Him, yeah, it's the family dynamic, and there is quite a large focus on him and on yeah. being being a father and being a parent. So it is quite a big death. Yeah, it? it's quite integral to that first story.
0: So that was my initial expectation. However, that did change slightly when I saw Killian Murphy was <laughs> yes. in it, and I was like,
1: "I mean, if Killian's in it, April was so basic. I don't care. We're both so basic because I was the same. Like this film isn't deep; it's like
0: puddle level. And yeah. I'm a person that likes Killian Murphy. So immediately, if you want to get my my
1: money and me in the cinema, it works really well. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah. I didn't feel like they needed a sequel at all. I was so skeptical, and I just thought it was, as you say, like. The first film, it ends abruptly, but it also kind of begins abruptly in that it drops yeah. you into the middle of this mysterious situation. And part of its success and part of its intrigue is that you're not getting a lot of backstory, you're not getting a lot of exposition. You don't know where these like evil things are from. You don't know how they got there. You don't know how they got to their house that like, we don't know and we don't need to know. There's a real lack of context in the first yeah. one,
0: but it works really well because you've got that That's initial great. establishing stuff of like, you know, in the barn where you've got yeah. loads of like news clippings and you've got mm-hmm. John Krasinski's famed
1: whiteboard. of What is their weakness? What is their weakness? What was the other film that we, oh, it was um, Sinister, wasn't it? Yeah. Sinister does the same, like, what is the box? Um, Love those whiteboards, love them no but you're right and I, I was worried that by doing a sequel and this is often what happens with sequels they're either going to go like let's do a prequel and talk about what happened in the lead up like
0: that, I feel like that happens so often within like genres specifically mm-hmm. so it happens re- with regularity within horror and it happens on a regular basis with sci-fi yeah. as well and this feels like
1: it straddles both really so I, I, I can't say I was surprised I was just slightly perplexed yeah it's like it's a recipe for just spending a lot of time just going back to the very beginning and explaining yeah. it all which i really didn't want but then yeah going into it the Killian murphy factor was obviously very big and i just thought okay if they can deliver some sort of tension and some mo- moments of peril that are different to the original film so they're mm. not just repackaging what they've done already like i'll be happy when we did get to see it did you like general impression wise did you enjoy it what did you think of it compared to the first film i had a good time i think i actually
0: controversially might have enjoyed this more than the first Do you know what
1: i think i might have done which is probably
0: ridiculous but i can't tell if it's just because i am largely ambivalent to john kaczynski or (laughs) if i just think that actually killian murphy is more convincing as a man that has been through like absolute worst thing that any human being can go through like he just he just sort of bridges this gap between like extremely unhinged but like incredibly sad really well like he just seems to navigate like the post-apocalyptic terrain in like a really interesting way but I really Mm. like I just really enjoyed it I think it like I said I think it is an interesting premise Mm. and it also works with the understanding that like the family themselves are initially able to adapt to this sort of strange situation where you can't make noise Mm. because they already know how to kind of verbalize things without actually vocalizing words I think the thing that I quite liked about the structure of this film specifically is that it's the idea of them having to leave where they're settled and journey outwards where they feel safe. Yeah. And I think that the, the thing that the first film does very well is like establish that obviously like this is, the situation does have global consequences, but it is incredibly focused on this family in this specific area. So I did quite like that you do get them out of that situation and they have to go into the world beyond, Mm. which I think works really well narratively. I think that the only thing I've have a criticism about is that now i just think that like opening up to a wider universe and how other people have been affected Mm. by this just means that it's going to keep going and going and going which i think actually will just get tiresome
1: yeah i think you're right what i really liked about that first film was the the focus on a family a home the parents that it was very much like the terror of parenthood parents raising these children in a dangerous world and we weren't seeing what the outside world is like and i think I slightly lose... I mean, obviously, I really like Killian Murphy in this, but I slightly start to lose interest when it becomes a bit more like, yeah, going out into the wider world. What are these communities doing? It's like The Walking Dead, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? That's a bit of a lazy comparison.
0: No, but... no, no, it's not, because it was immediately the thing that I was thinking of. And and the first film reminded me a lot of the film Signs, the mm-hmm. M. Night Shin- yeah. film, which I, I quite enjoy. and And that's a film that, like, it's a situation that's happening to a specific family on a farm in an area. Mm. But you do kind of get the sense that this is happening globally to other people. But you just don't see any of it. It's just implied. There is the yeah. presumption that other people are going through this like strange experience. Mm. And and as a device, I think narratively, I quite like that. Like I sort of like the implied wider consequences. But yeah. you just don't have to see it. And yeah. it doesn't mean that I'm adverse to like anything sort of penetrating that but i just like you was the things in this film i sort of enjoyed more were where it was just like killing murphy emily blunt and the children mm. and the stuff i liked less about it was just like going beyond when it does get into walking dead territory and that yeah. is something that i was thinking of while we were watching it and afterwards mm. and i've never seen an episode of walking dead <laughs> in full yeah. in my entire life but i just know what it is you know i i'm, a, I'm familiar with the comics and i'm just familiar with like the vibe
1: and such mm, it's like you know have people i don't know has humankind been changed forever can people mm. be trusted is everyone evil yeah you know yeah making it to these sort of community plots that kind of thing and i mean talking about it like that makes it sound like i dislike this film more than the first film and the reason i think i like this film a lot is is that if the first film kind of focuses on parenthood, this film felt like it focused more on the children. Absolutely.
0: So yeah. Regan,
1: who's played by Millicent Simmons, you know, she very much felt like the lead in this film. Yeah. And then also Marcus, who's played by Noah Duke, her brother, gets a lot more screen time. And I think he's like a really fantastic actor in it. They're so brilliant, the two They're of them. They're so good. But like focusing on Regan and her point of view, like the use of silence where we literally inhabit her and you know understand what she's experiencing quite a few moments like those were really effective moments Um, And I really liked drawing in the focus on her and it making it a story of kind of where she as a person has kind of grown and how she's being empowered, if you get what I mean.
0: Yeah, it just feels like a natural progression from the Mm. first film, which is so much about the two parents trying to protect their family Mm. and their children and and this sort of Mm. safe contained space. But the second film, I think, feels like a a logical progression.
1: They're having to grow up, aren't they? The kids are having to learn to kind of fend for themselves and grow as kind of people which i really liked it's quite interesting that actually i was thinking about the fact that this is kind of the third film in which i've seen acting roles for deaf actors in the past mm. 12 months so obviously we spoke about sound of metal before and yeah. also um the young actress who plays gia in godzilla vs kong yes is deaf as well so i just yeah i just thought that was interesting and i hope we can do the same for like other disabled actors yeah absolutely what did
0: you think about the, uh, the framing device that's at the beginning of the film and how that kind of establishes Killian Murphy as a character and how it does sort of give context to this situation, which
1: was previously contextless? I mean, I really liked Killian Murphy's character. I thought that was obviously like a very interesting character in the way that he's lost a lot of humanity and been by himself and been through, you know, a really great hardship. And he has to reconnect with this family and learn to kind of defend and care for them, not just caring for himself or looking out for himself as you say, the way it opens with kind of this backstory of where we get to see the creatures when they first landed with apparently they're aliens, fine. Um, I just couldn't care less. That's probably my the weakest bit. <laughs> I think I was going to say that
0: I really liked this sort of like 10-minute period at the beginning where you sort yeah. of see like this build up to this like little league game I think as it was an interesting way to sort of bring in and establish this character that Killian Murphy plays as someone that they did know in from the before times and it does kind of sets that up well like you get a sense of who he is and like his relationship yeah. to the family and the kids and blah 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 and there are obviously like nice little throwbacks to that on numerous occasions the thing that I didn't like about it is one of the things that I thought worked so well about the first film is that so much of the tension and uh I don't know anxiety and uh, just the general vibe of the first film is established in the fact that you don't really see yeah what is after them like you don't see the aliens or the unknown beings mm-hmm. and the thing Stop that with I... all the cGI monsters. I mean and I think this is probably the the main weakness for me is that like I don't like seeing them like I no. feel like it undermines a lot of the tension of course it does and yeah. it just for me I'm a person that like I think about things like alien for example mm-hmm. and like The Xenomorph, you just barely see it at all. Mm -hmm. You just barely see it in the first Alien film, and that was what was so brilliant about the first film. It's this unknown entity
1: that just like you know a little bit about it, but you don't really see it. It moves quickly. You know how it moves. You know what it reacts to, but you don't get a good look at it.
0: Absolutely, and and I feel like it. That first 10 minutes, the establishing 10 minutes in part two is like very,
1: very good like Steven Spielberg-esque
0: sci-fi
1: type stuff. It's like cars being thrown around and the city being smashed up and people fleeing and screaming. All of that kind of stuff that you see in like a million other, as you say, like Spielberg-esque blockbuster films. Like I didn't really need any of that. No.
0: And the other thing as well, I think for me, the problem with those Aliens, beings, whatever they are, is that they bear such, for me anyway, they bear such a striking resemblance to so a the Demogorgon. <laughs> They're like, at one stage, I was like, just sat there thinking, like, they just look like Demogorgons, like, like so much. Did nobody at any stage during the creation of the film, and indeed during the period at which it's just been held in limbo for fifteen months, go mm-hmm. like, "Hey, guys, they look a lot like the Demogorgons from Stranger Things, that TV show that came out four years ago." Like, and it's not even like, "Oh, they they look a little bit like it." It's like, no, they literally, from
1: a mouth point of view, they
0: they have the same. Oh yeah, thing. they're the
1: same. They're basically from the same family, wherever they're from might be the same planet. And that got really distracting for me. Every time yeah. I saw
0: them, I was just thinking like Demogorgon, Demogorgon. Oh, Stranger yeah. Things Season four is coming out soon. Oh, that'll yeah. be good. Yeah,
1: cool. Oh yeah. I Wonder what wonder what happened to David Harbour's character. Yeah. Oh yeah, great, cool. Eleven, nice. Like And like the more you see it, you know what we were saying like when you see Brad Pitt on TV, you just think Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt. I just kept thinking like it's CGI, it's CGI, it's it like it just I understand why but I just wish that they hadn't. No, I think that wasn't necessary. Maybe I do like the first film more. I think I probably had fewer criticisms. But I just had, I did have a lovely time watching this.
0: I think that the thing is, it's like, I really, really enjoyed watching this in a way that I didn't expect to. Like, I was extremely mm-hmm. pumped to go to the cinema and stare at Killian Murphy's face for like an hour and a half when I've not been able to go to the cinema for 15 months. Like, I was hyped on that. Mm. But it's just, that was my thing where I was just like, oh, I just wish that we wouldn't have to see them. But it's fun. Like, they i don't think they appear with such regularity where it was like irritating it's just like Mm. every time they applied i was like oh that's just one less point that i will give this film but yeah i know what you mean i just had a really good time and i think it is absolutely like i don't want to be i feel like we've all been through like a lot in the last 15 months and to get to a stage where like i feel comfortable to go to the cinema is just Mm. feels like an extremely
1: and to watch this kind of like post-apocalyptic film in the middle of a pandemic. Like you've got to be feeling a lot better in order to do that. So that's... um,
0: Absolutely. I don't want to be too critical about it in that sense, but it was just, it's the type of film that I was like, oh, actually, I'm quite glad that I
1: got to watch this in the cinema on a big screen. Some really great performances, especially from the young actors. Yeah. And I think it managed to maintain like the tension and deliver some really good sort of scenes that were very... Absolutely. Very pa- like packed with tension and felt very like, oh, like what's going on? Like there's the, the a bit where you almost stressed. get like, yeah, like there's a the bit where the story kind of splits into three branches which cross cut each other. Yeah. And you've got these three kind of moments of peril happening at exactly the same time, which worked really well. So I thought it was a good, I thought it was much better than I had anticipated it being
0: absolutely i knew that i would just have a good time going to see it at the cinema with you just because it was like something new and different to do but i definitely did come away being like oh actually that was a good time um the only other thing i just wanted to mention was the like two minute window that scoot mcnary turns up for oh my god i forgot about that (laughs) it's like so i mean we were just we mentioned like the walking dead and the weird like you know oh people have gone feral they're all changed now because the society has gone mad but there's a bit where they're on the harbor and they're gonna be stealing a boat and there's this sort of a weird band of like i don't know pirate people (laughs) pirate people but it's implied that they've all gone a bit mad because like there's no food or water or whatever they're the others they are the others they're the others they have extreme walking dead energy and like one of the guys
1: looked sort of recognizable i absolutely didn't recognize him at all
0: i thought it was the actor noah taylor who is in an abundance of things like almost famous who was in predestination which i watched recently oh yeah yeah i can
1: kind of the see the australian who
0: looks a bit like ben Mendelssohn, but i thought it was like him and then i was looking at the cast list when i got home and I was like, oh, sure, Scoot McNary. Scoot. Scoot McNary just in it for a non, in a non-speaking role for approximately five seconds, don't know, five minutes maximum, unrecognisable. Oh, yeah, I would love to know the oral history behind why Scoot McNary is there, what he signed on for. Was his Maybe role Maybe he's bigger? filling a gap like Guy Pearce. Do you think that he's just pals with John Krasinski? And yes. John Krasinski was like, hi, Scoot. Um, would you like to come and be in my film? You get to wear a, a long wig and look like you eat people. And say, yeah. And just <laughs> a like, yeah. look a bit threatened. And he was like, yeah, sure, I'm not doing anything right now. Yeah. I don't know, just very jarring. But I don't know, I had a very good time and I am glad that we went to see it in the cinema. Me too. Surprisingly good for um, the sequel that we didn't ask for. So, moving on from A Quiet Place, part two, we thought that as we are now approaching the end of June, that's weird, isn't it? A thing to say.
1: I don't know where the past six months have gone.
0: Well, as we are halfway through 2021, we thought it would be a good opportunity for us to recap some of the things that have gotten us through the first part of this year. Um, this year has been sort of maybe not as weird as last year so far, but it's still mm. been weird. We also thought it would be a good opportunity as well for us to mention a few things that we've not necessarily covered on the podcast before, whether that's for time or relevance reasons. Um, Obviously, when we do have our discussions on the podcast we uniformly try to mention things that we've like either both seen or both engaged with so often there are a lot of things that like I've watched or read or listened to on my own and exactly the same for you so Mm -hmm. I feel like this will be like a nice retrospective of 2021 for us so far so with that in mind we tried well I say we you really effectively did the assignment which was just to whittle (laughs) things down to a six and then I did in a classic turn of events ended up doing slightly more because I have an inability to just like do what I'm told (laughs) Yes, you're quite naughty. I always do this. It's like when we do our end of year lists and I've got like a top fifteen as opposed I do
1: to a I do a very disciplined top ten and then you always go over. Sorry. I'm just <laughs> really enjoying
0: all of the things all of the time. Um so we're gonna break it down into categories just for ease. Shall we start with T V? That's purely because yeah. that's where my list starts. So I have definitely gone for things that I don't necessarily think that we've covered or we may not have even discussed amongst ourselves, actually. Mm-hmm. Of so the first thing that I've got on my list is Girls 5 Ever, which mm-hmm. is currently on Peacock in the United States. I think it will eventually turn up here. I'm not entirely sure when, but it is a 6 or seven episode arc about a 1990s girl group that only managed to score one hit but they get an unexpected chance at a comeback on their song is sampled on an up and coming rapper's song it's executive produced by Meredith Scardino and Tina Fey who previously collaborated on the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and absolutely has the same vibe it stars Sarah Bareilles Busy Phillips Paula Powell Renee Elise Goldsberry plus lots of other guest stars from kind of the world of comedy and further afield, in including Andrew Rannells um, I really really enjoyed this. I regrettably think Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is brilliant for all its flaws. I'm a big Tina Fey fan as well, regrettably. Um, And I also love Busy Phillips. So for me, it ticked a lot of boxes. And I feel like it's so nostalgia driven. It reminds me of that kind of like late 90s, early 2000s girl band period and i think i was a bit skeptical going into it thinking it was going to be really really cringe but actually it's really really sweet and very Aww. very funny so i hope that more people get to see it sooner and it was announced recently that they're getting a second season which i think will be brilliant because it was a very very short order i think because of covid which obviously understandably makes sense So that's something i've very much enjoyed on the tv front uh, is there anything that you wanted to throw in
1: yeah i would like to talk about how i unexpectedly became a huge fan of shadow and bone which wasn't like <laughs> I a thing things. i expected at all just totally had no intention of watching it and then the internet persuaded me a couple of people on instagram persuaded me and uh so there's just season one at the moment that dropped on netflix back in april i think and it's based on the first two books in of the grisha verse which is created by lee bardugo so dipped into it basically because I didn't have anything else that I wanted to watch um, by myself at the time and just had like the best time with it. I hadn't read the books in advance, I'm not like I don't think I watch or read a lot of fantasy stuff really or much YA kind of fantasy stuff but the world building in this is like really vivid and it's quite unique and there are some really lovable and kind of compelling characters. Um, It does take a little while to make sense of and kind of get into so there are a lot of players and kind of separate story threads that eventually come together and then of course lots of kind of terminology that are is very specific to the Grisha verse that took me a while to learn and I was kind of advised to stick with it so I had to accept that a lot of it might not make sense to me for a while but I just had a lovely time with it you know it's very sort of genre typical in that it's got witches and magic and pirates and blah 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 but it kind of hits all of the right notes and its heart's in the right place um I really like Jessie Lee Mai as um Alina Starkov I think she's brilliant as sort of the the, the lead protagonist the heroine of the story story she's great and i liked her relationship with most of the characters actually but i really liked her relationship with mal who's kind of her oldest friend played by archie renault who was brilliant as well so if you're looking for fun fantasy escapism i highly recommend it sometimes i don't get through fantasy shows i kind of get bored and kind of drop off after a few episodes but i just really got into this and thought it was lovely I really wish I liked fantasy stuff more. I feel mm. like the only thing of recent
0: times that I've gelled with in any capacity is finally getting around to reading his dark materials.
1: Mm. I'm so glad you did that as well, because that's another very, in terms of world building, I yeah. think that's brilliant as well. So I feel like they're a bit hand in hand, actually. Like, I think I like Shadow and Bone for some of the same reasons and... I mean I probably watch more fantasy than you but I don't think I watch it or read a lot of it really at all so um this was like a really nice treat for me
0: lovely um the only other two things I was going to mention are two kind of short comedy series so I really enjoyed season three of Shrill which is a uh, Hulu on oh, or yes. BBC three it's the third and final season of the show based on Lindy West's book of the same name stars Aidy Bryant and Lolly Eda Fope as well as John Cameron Mitchell Patty Harrison ER Fightmaster um I just really love AD Bryant Jen really from Saturday Night Live and I think she's so brilliant. So brilliant. She's and you started watching this recently. Yeah so
1: I'm on season three now. I haven't finished season three but I basically blasted through the first two seasons in like a week. Did you enjoy it? Yeah so much. I just had a great time with it. It's just really nice. It's very funny and everyone's very lovable.
0: Everyone is very very funny and they're just such like a nice mix of characters and sort of just such a like a wide array of faces from comedy. I think mm-hmm. that's what's really mm-hmm. I really like about it. So you've got someone that's recognizable, like AD, who is on Saturday Night Live, but you've got British comedian, uh, Fope, and then you've got someone like John Cameron Mitchell who's just like an icon generally. Mm-hmm. And then Patty Harrison is just she's hilarious as Ruthie Um, so I just I was really really sad to hear that it was the final season but it also mm. sort of makes sense in terms of like not again you don't
1: want it to drag on for no, too long no
0: absolutely and I was just sort of like it was, it was really interesting to sort of see Annie and Fran and their kind of arc come to an end and also it's just I really like the fact that it's set in Portland mm. that's just quite nice it's just a very like aesthetically pleasing city that I enjoy quite a lot so that was something that I really really enjoyed blasting my way through very swiftly and something else I watched it an entire day was Starstruck oh good lord a whole day it's only six episodes six episodes half an hour episodes so it's a uh hbo and bbc3 production it's a comedy about a 20 something year old new zealand woman named Jessie who lives in hackney um she's juggling jobs in a cinema and as a nanny and she goes out one evening on new year's eve and sleeps with an incredibly famous film star but she doesn't realize that he's famous and it's sort of it's written by rose matafeo who stars in it as Jessie, and it has this kind of like notting hill-esque vibe without being like super super cringe it's just very like I don't know I feel like if you're into like things like Fleabag if you're into Shrill actually I feel like it's on Mm. completely the same wavelength and I just really blasted through it I think Rose is like absolutely hilarious and just very very likeable and again that also has been given a second season too very swiftly so it'll be interesting to see where they take the story
1: my other TV I did two TV picks actually and my other TV pick was We Are Lady parts which I think you haven't watched I haven't watched Yet. No, tell me. No. So I watched this on a whim, again, because some people I follow on Twitter were talking about it and praising it, and I guess it's kind of a... It's on Channel 4, it's a British sitcom, I guess, by Nida Manzor, and it's about a group of young women in the UK who decide to form an all-female Muslim punk band. It's quite a short series, I think it's like six episodes, maybe, and it's amazing. follows how they navigate friendships and relationships and sort of cultural differences and things, and... I was a little bit reluctant because as always and as we have discussed before I find music and musicians quite difficult to portray on TV and film yes. and something like punk in particular it like is just a really fine line between sort of realistic and just cringe yeah. but I think I had a lot of fun with this show and I think the fact that it kind of contains original songs and covers as well which were sort of written by um Nida and like her siblings and the actors in the show will play their own instruments so I kind kind of I don't know it felt quite grounded in reality I really liked that and it very much subverts the kind of you know the trope and the trope that we see often on tv as well of kind of like a an an oppressed muslim woman you know these are all characters who are sort of they're they're practicing muslims and musicians they're not sacrificing one for another they are both at the same time and I think as someone who isn't muslim I find it really it was like a really engaging insight for me personally into what it might be like to be a young muslim woman in the country today who has interests that reflect my own as well and it's been getting a lot of praise i think it's quite tongue-in-cheek and it pokes fun but it's quite celebratory as well it's not mean at all and it's just it's, it's very light-hearted and i had a really nice time with it it's very easy to watch as well it's just like super watchable you can just breeze through it i think the episodes are i don't know less than half an hour so. dreamland breeze through it have a lovely time and have a laugh and see some great kind of young actresses doing something quite different for british tv at the moment
0: i definitely need to get around to watching this it's definitely on my list of stuff i need to cover you'll watch
1: that in a day is it? yeah
0: i think that's the thing recently as i've just been really like after things that are like super super short that i can just kind of get through and have a like a sense of accomplishment so mm-hmm. i definitely think i'll touch on that one soon especially if mm. it's got like short episode lens. So moving from television on films, one thing that I watched... <sighs> Did I watch it in February or March time, and then swiftly watched about a week later was *Barb and Star* go to Vista Del Mar. How about that, <laughs> like I'm, I'm like full obsessed with this film, and in a way that like I can just tell that I'm gonna watch it over and over and over, and it will give me such comfort because it's absolutely absurd. So, <sighs> it's a film directed by Josh Greenbaum from a screenplay by Kristen Wigg and Annie Momello, who also star in the film. The, the pair of them wrote Bridesmaids together. Mm. So if that gives you like a sense of kind of the vibe that it might you have. You really need
1: to watch it, yeah.
0: The film also stars Jamie Dornan and Damon Wayans Jr. And the plot roughly is that it follows two best friends, Barb and Star, from Nebraska, who travel to Vista Del Mar in Florida on a vacation only to find themselves caught up in an evil villain's plot. It is like, <laughs> for me it really nails the like absolutely weird and absurd type of like comedy that I really really enjoy and it's absolutely anchored in the performances by Kristen Wiig and Annie Mamello. like they are so strangely convincing as Barb and Star and for me immediately it's already gone into the realms of like cult classic. so I just mm. consider it on a level of things like like pop star, the Lonely Island film, like Wet Hot American Summer, like all of the kind of slightly absurd but comforting, yeah. strangely comforting films that I enjoy. There are so many mm. things in it that I've already started quoting, like at home, that I, like that T and I will just say to each other. But it's just, it's one of those films as well that I just feel like you have to experience it to just really understand like how absolutely batshit it is and i think that you'll either really like it or you'll just think it's like absolutely weird insufferable <laughs> it was released on video on demand this year as a rental but I think that I've seen this week actually that now TV here in the UK have started doing previews for it which makes me think that oh, it's, on, it's on the horizon so I really hope we'll that speak. like when people have access to it they're able to watch it the standout thing for me is that like it allows Jamie Dornan to speak in his native accent which is like such a rare treat because usually beautiful. He's, usually he's just murdering an American Which he he can't convincingly do. Also, he sings in it, which is just stupid, but amazing. So (laughs) I really hope that... I mean, I, I was actually considering watching it again this week, so... That says it all, really. Are there any particular films that you've enjoyed so far this year that we might not have touched
1: on? Um So it turns out I haven't watched many films this year that are actually from this year. There hasn't been that many yet.
0: No, this is the thing I thought. Like, a lot of the films that have come out in 2021, we have already covered, I think,
1: or just yes. like,
0: wouldn't necessarily mention.
1: No. One, I don't think we did cover and i think technically came out last year but we watched it this year was minari oh of course which um we saw at glasgow was it glasgow film yes it was uh... that was this year wasn't it yeah it was yeah so it didn't actually come out in the uk until this year it's obviously the film written directed by lee isaac chung and does stars lots of amazing people, including um, Stephen Yin and Alan Kim and Yoon Jung and others. Um, and it's kind of this, uh, I think it's described as like a semi-autobiographical story of Lee Isaac Chung's upbringing. He grew up on a farm in Arkansas. And it follows a family, a South Korean family who have immigrated to the US and they're trying to make it on a farm during the 1980s. And we just I think we both had a really lovely time with this, didn't we? It's just I really, really liked this. It's so beautiful. And I just think there are like such an
0: array of like interesting and like endearing performances and i know we sort of touched upon it during oscar season but didn't really go into a huge amount of depth of it
1: yeah i mean it's been a few months since we watched it and the it's the performances for me that really stand out yes. and kind of well everyone i mentioned already actually is standouts like stephen yin um yun yu jung and alan kim's portrayal of david is like so developed for like a the, you know the car- character child. character it's just a it's just a child in cowboy boots but he's like absolutely brilliant it's just a wonderful wonderful performance and it's like a really intimate and kind of touching look at like a cross generational family trying to sort of assimilate in America and there's lots of hardship but there's also lots of joy and I just I remember us both having a really nice time with it and it's a film that I look back on very warmly and I'm really glad we watched it when we did
0: absolutely Um, it's funny that you mentioned the kind of like delayed release of it in the UK because something else I wanted to touch upon was similarly had a, a kind of weird release schedule here for us so it's First Cow which is oh, of course yeah Kelly Reichardt's seventh feature film it finally got a release here in the UK in May and then it's also going to be streaming on Mubi next month so that's in July It it's so like when I was looking into this it's so bizarre so it premiered at Telluride Film Festival in August 2019 and then appeared at the Berlin Film Festival at the start of last year before the pandemic so in February 2020 it had a theatrical release in the United States before the pandemic so March 2020 and then went on to video on demand in July of 2020 so we've almost had to wait like a full year I'd so the film itself is from a screenplay by Kelly Reichardt and her longtime collaborator Jonathan Raymond based on his novel The Half-Life um, it stars John Magaro, Orion Lee, Toby Jones, Ewan Bremner, Scott Shepard, Gary Farmer and Lily Gladstone um, roughly speaking it It's about a cook who's travelled West and joined a group of fur trappers in Oregon. And he sort of finds connection with a Chinese immigrant. It's set in kind of like, I don't know, the 1800s. So it's definitely like a period piece. And the two men, Cookie... And King Lu end up collaborating on a successful business. I watched this at home at the start of the year in sort of February, March time, and then I had the opportunity to go and see it in the cinema last week. And I'm really glad I got to go and see it on the big screen actually, because I'd I'd enjoyed it at home, but there was definitely something missing from my viewing experience in my house during the day. Kelly Reichart has a tendency to like do a lot of like naturalistic lighting within her films. So her films are set in the great outdoor doors in like the Oregon forests and so she uses a lot of like natural light which is great when it's during the day and it's really really bright but when you're watching a film that's set in the night time and it you're at home during the day in the middle of like bright light and you basically can't see anything um so it was just really great to go and sit in like a dark cinema uninterrupted and just kind of experience it and i just think it's brilliant i think actually it might be the best thing i've seen this year so far it's just so tender and warm and beautiful and just i don't know it's just a lovely wave wash over me i took my mum who like is absolutely like not the type of person that would go and see kelly reitkart films but she just even she had a lovely time. She thought the cow was beautiful. Oh, bless that cow. There we go. Is that her one line review? No, she... The cow was beautiful. Actually, this is like very nice. So my mum really likes cooking. She will listen to this as well. So she is a very good chef. She's a very good baker. The film itself features a lot of baking, which is primarily how I sold it to her, really. I was like, oh, mum, it's about cooking and it's got Toby Jones in it. <clears throat> a great selling point. Um, And she... So she, my mum's a great cook. She's a baker. She loves... You know, putting together recipes, deconstructing rep- recipes. Um, there's a lot of cooking and baking in the film. There's one point someone is asked to make a claflutus, which is a French dish, and and I I sort of knew what it was only because I'd watched the film. And it, my mum and I were in the cinema on our own together. There was nobody else there, and she asked me what it was, like, if I knew what it was, and I was like, mm, no, not really. And then she just like explained to me the entire cooking method of it and it was just this like extremely nice tender moment between us after like a year and a half of like essentially not really doing anything together where normally I would have been like mum can you please not talk to me I'm watching this film but I just let her do it and it was really nice <laughs> um, and the only other thing I just wanted to draw attention to and it sort of straddles tv and film really so I suppose it's a bit of a controversial thing is Bo Burnham's Inside which is his comedy special that he wrote directed filmed edited and starred It was recording during the pandemic without any crew or audience. It was all created and put together by Bo Burnham. And it was released on Netflix at the end of May. Bo Burnham, if you are unfamiliar with him, um, he's a stand-up comedian. He's very young. He's only just turned 30 and he got kind of famous from doing stuff on YouTube. He'd largely retired from doing stand-up because he began to suffer from panic attacks on stage. So after working on other projects, which included the film Eighth Grade, which I think we both watched and liked, he'd planned to return to doing stand-up Uh, broadly in 2020 and then the pandemic happened. So Bo Burnham Inside follows his last comedy special, Make Happy, which was released in 2016. Um, I think this for me is really the only pandemic content I actually want to consume ever. It does this really good job of like managing to capture the strange weirdness, hysteria, plot loss, sadness, anger, depression of like 2020 into 2021 without, like, necessarily referencing the pandemic or COVID at any point. It's just this really interesting, like, deconstruction and representation of, like, essentially cabin fever, which I feel like we were all going through at some stage last year. And I really, really, really enjoyed it. I I kind of, like, liked Bo Burnham prior to that, but didn't really like his stand-up particularly. But this completely, really sold me on this, him as a person. So... I feel like the internet is awash with hot takes on inside. So I won't necessarily pontificate (laughs) for too long. But Bo Burnham is a tall man and I love
1: him. Very tall man.
0: Moving on to books. When I went through and I was making my list, I realised that I actually haven't technically read a huge amount that was released in 2021. Mm. I feel like perhaps you might have read more maybe through work. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like because you've been reading a lot of things for your actual job. Um, a lot of what I ended up reading this year so far has been like largely 2020 catch up, but there were a handful of things that I really enjoyed. One thing was Diary of a Film by Niven Govindan, which is about an author together with his lead actors is at a prestigious European film festival to premiere his latest film. I sort of quite like this like kind of meandering look at a man who ends up, Backstreet Cafe strikes up a conversation with a local woman who then takes him on a walk to uncover the city's secrets and you kind of learn about him and his career in film and his sort of backstory and the relationship that he has with his actors. I will say it was really really hard for me to not read this and immediately think of Luca Guadagnino Mm. and I can't tell if it's intentional or not and I haven't been able to necessarily pin down anything where Niven has explicitly said that like who it was influenced by i Mm. think that the director in it is supposed to potentially either be from poland or croatia that's probably completely wrong but i don't know it just gave me like extremely luca vibes which i quite enjoyed
1: (laughs) i think even the yeah the premise like of the book on the back sounds it all sounds like luca yeah absolutely so that was i really really enjoyed that the first book i chose was one that i read i think quite early this year it was Luckin booth by jenny fagan who's a scottish novelist and poet um i haven't read her before so i'm yet to read the panopticon so i need to do that because i was extremely taken with her writing style and uh, i saw somewhere that this book was described as a multi-story horror story which i kind of like it's kind of part folk tale and sort of a bit gothic kind of part magic it's it is it's a hard one to pin down it's very sort of fragmented and it's um fragments of stories across a sort of 90 year timeline which talk over each other a lot and you meet all of these various characters who've lived and operated across this uh luck and booth close so this tenement building of edinburgh Um, I think there's about nine stories or nine floors in this building and you kind of move up them um, and across time as these stories are told. And again, we've kind of discussed this before. I love the built, like I love a building as a setting, whether it's a house or an apartment or whatever, and the building as a character in and of itself. Um, And you also get a very strong sense of place and setting within Edinburgh, within kind of the old town of Edinburgh. And all of its kind of dark winding streets and things which i really love i love edinburgh as a place so It's got a really great chorus of voices, so they're kind of bizarre and mythical, and often sort of morally unpredictable. And they're they're very much characters living on the outside or on the limits of society, and all of their stories intertwine across this ninety years. So, just really, really loved that book, and would highly recommend it. That sounds very much up your alley. It is. I love that. It was lent to me as a book that was
0: (laughs) just yeah, just from your description there, it just seems like extremely like Staff McKenna catnip um something else that i enjoyed fairly recently actually was uh, crying in h-mart by michelle Zauner. it's her memoir Uh, michelle is the singer and guitarist um who's probably best known for her music project japanese breakfast it's her debut book um was published in april it's sort of an expansion of her essay of the same name which was published in the new yorker in august of 2018 and I'd read it at the time and enjoyed it so I was really pleased when um, it was announced that it had been expanded into more of a kind of wider ranging memoir it's it's incredibly moving like the book itself begins with that first essay which sort of touches on how her mother gets cancer and it sort of puts her on this journey of kind of looking at her family adjusting to the kind of you know changing dynamic and the impending grief and loss that's going to be brought upon by her terminal diagnosis of pancreatic cancer Um, michelle was only 25 at the time so it sort of forces within her this reckoning of her identity um she has kind of dual heritage of korean and american so she's kind of just you know getting her head around what it means to be not considered american enough and what it means to not be considered korean enough and i just it was so incredibly moving and i just i i raced through it just because I wanted to consume it as much as possible. The way that she writes about food in it is just incredible and I really recommend it to everyone. It's out here in August. I think I managed to get myself a copy from the States. Um, I did read though that it's going to be adapted into a film Uh, which interesting sure the book itself is very much a like non-fiction memoir um so it'll be interesting to see i don't know how that pans out but it's just it's so incredibly moving and it's just some of the best writing that i've read this year and i just had a really nice time with it
1: wonderful um i've got one other book i was going to mention Um, Actually, I've read quite a few good books that were released this year. But another one that I thought about quite a lot was The Last House on Needless Street by Catriona Ward, who I believe is a UEA alumni. Oh, local Studied from round here. Um, And I went into this book. I don't read a lot of... Well, I thought I was going into a kind of mystery book of which that's a genre I don't read a lot. But I guess it turned out to be more of a kind of psychological horror, which probably is more on brand for me and initially I really couldn't get a handle on the style of narration like it's you meet Ted who is obviously a very unreliable narrator but then there are lots of other well there are two other narrators and points of view at play one of which seemed extremely bizarre um, and didn't sit comfortably with me to begin with and I just thought this is completely like off the wall I don't know why this is happening. The plot A heads in a direction that you don't anticipate at all and makes for a very unusual kind of Story structure and outcome, um, and it feels like everything falls apart within the story and then comes back together again at the end. It's pretty grim stuff. Yes, it's a pretty hard hitting book in a way. There's quite a few grim uh, subjects that are dealt with, but it has a really playful use of language and narrative form and kind of genre, which I really enjoyed and which does something quite different. So, if that's the sort of thing that you would usually enjoy reading, I would give it a try, but it's definitely not didn't go the way I thought it would and was therefore quite different to, to a lot of other things I've read recently.
0: So I think the last thing I just wanted to cover was music i feel like when i was going through and making lists of stuff Mm. there were like things that like i've passively enjoyed but there was there was only a handful of things that like i've super super been hyped on and i feel like we had this discussion last year when we were talking about like when we got to the end of the year and we were doing our like 2020 best ofs i feel like when we came to music we both were in agreement that there was stuff that like we were obviously obsessed with but then everything else I don't know. Seem to yes. like. I feel. I feel like I felt personally so much of last year. There were all these albums that were coming out, and I was just like, no, I haven't got time for it. Can't entertain anything new. And I still feel a little bit. That's that's how I'm feeling with stuff. It's a bit strange.
1: I think there's been a few things that I think like are quite nice, and I've listened to whilst working. But like as you say, I haven't been. I don't know. Maybe 2018 was no, not 2018. 2019 was the last time oh my god it was the last time i really felt anything about music that's not true at all that's so not true but um no i do completely understand what you mean and there's only been a couple of things so far that i've like really thoroughly enjoyed and listened to on rotation
0: yeah absolutely so the first the first thing for me was that i have really enjoyed this record super monster by a singer songwriter called claude they're from chicago and their the record was released by phoebe bridges satisfactory label it's super super poppy just kind of like nice and chill and upbeat um it has some really trippy cover art which claude made themselves but i had never heard of claude before and then i sort of kind Mm. of see saw their name pop up on i think it must have been instagram like a couple of people have posted about them but it's just super super nice it's just really nice and upbeat and kind of like i don't know like poppy without being super super pop but not kind of the normal like extremely sad, depressing jams that i found myself you do love sad girl music i love sad girl music it came out i think in like february march time which and and seasonally it felt very much at odds with what it's putting out musically because it's really like nice like oh the sun is out i'm gonna go for a walk or i'm gonna go for a drive type jams um so it was quite it's been quite nice to just keep coming and coming back to it um especially when the weather has been like slightly strange here yes and i and i know that for sure it's definitely going to be one of my favorite records of the year which like completely unsurprised by the immediate moment I heard it so that's one thing in particular
1: that I've really really enjoyed I'm well one I had one which I think you're going to cover anyway so I haven't put that down and instead I have decided to take one for the team and admit that at 32 the Disney teenager that's made a banging album and has just graduated high school is actually quite good so um, I'm a really big fan of this Olivia Rodrigo album. Steph, I really want to get it. I just don't get it. Oh, no, it's really good. It's really good. It's not that I think it's bad. I
0: just, I, I feel like something needs to happen. I, I need to experience a shift because I, I like from an outside perspective, I just am really enjoying everything that she's doing. Like, I just mm-hmm. want good things for her, but it just doesn't hit me. Tell me about it. What do you like about it? I just
1: think it's great. Like, I paid absolutely no attention to driver's license when it came yeah, out. Like, same, completely same. beyond my awareness. Not interested. It's like, it's a lot of, like, acoustic breathy pop stuff that's not really my bag no. at all. I so rarely like that stuff that that makes me feel like this must have something. Yeah. Otherwise, um, I wouldn't like it so much. And I do think that opener track has got quite a lot to do with it. Because I do think... That Brutal is probably one of my most played songs so far this year. Like, I just think it's such a banger. I will
0: say that I very much do enjoy its kind of, like, Paramore, Misery Business, like, vibe as a whole.
1: It's got very, like, 90s, early 2000s vibes, which I really like. And I think there is something quite nice about listening to a teenage girl singing... Very, about very angsty things and I'd rather listen to that over male dominated pop punk like any day.
0: 100%. This is what I mean about wanting good things for her because I just feel like yeah. I would rather that she had free reign to do what she wants than
1: anyone else. For sure. Um, I think I'm also probably drawn towards the like the more guitar driven songs so yeah. Good For You and Jealousy Jealousy as well are like some of my favourite tracks and they are they do less of the breathy acoustic pop stuff which is... not as much my thing but I think as a I don't think there's any skips although I do think that some tracks are stronger than others and initially I was like oh it's just the first song that I really Mm -hmm. like but after repeat listening (laughs) I am very much on the side of this album in a way that I didn't expect because I don't think I even knew who Olivia Rodrigo was about Three months ago, so uh I'm I'm here in support of her. Good for good for you, Olivia Rodrigo. You have a you do you do your thing. Happy high school graduation. The thing that I
0: think you were referring to that you thought I was probably going to cover um is Jubilee by Japanese Breakfast. It is. It's the <laughs> third studio album from Michelle Zauner, um, who has sort of largely described the album as being about joy, which I think kind of I don't know ticks the boxes. It's in very much in contrast to her previous two albums psychopomp and soft sounds from another planet which had been kind of they had more prevalent themes of grief surrounding her mother's death so it kind Mm. of it ties in really nicely to the book and the album came out like came out in june so it came out after the release of her book the timing of this has been obviously like very well orchestrated so hats off to michelle there it's just such a joy i just keep playing it over and over like be sweet is definitely like one of my favorite songs from this year
1: be sweet is so so good it rem- for some reason it makes me think of strawberry switchblade and i don't know why but it has the same it's vibe got absolute strawberry switchblade vibes and it's just a really lovely summer song i saw someone describe this as being like the type of
0: song that you would want to be played at like a hip wedding and i was like yeah this absolutely Ooh. has like i just want to be able to go out and dance with it to my friends yeah. the other song i'm obsessed with is uh, mostly because of the video because it's just brilliant is um savage good boy and the video have you seen the video of this no you have to watch it because having Knowing full well that you have just finished The Sopranos, it's
1: got Michael Imperioli in it. Oh! Hot. Michael Imperioli. Oh, yeah. God. It's amazing watching, re-watching The Sopranos in my 30s. It's amazing how many of these men I fancy. It's criminal it's funny
0: for me because like i i re goodfellas not that long ago and he's in it a very you know young first appearance in it and he's extremely hot in that and then i have read a couple of interviews with him of late where he just talks about like his wide-ranging taste in music he's like talk he's talked about like how he's big music fam. how he's like really into like shoegaze and stuff which is just like completely against what you would think Michael Imperioli would be into. So you should watch the video for Savage Good Boy because it's a really brilliant song, but he's in it and he looks great. What a casting, I love that. But yeah, I mean, this record is just... I. Like you know, multiple so multiple times a day. It's and it's just really nice and upbeat. It definitely is like completely different to her previous records, which I have really mm-hmm. really enjoyed. It's just kind of like a nice summer record. It, it, mm-hmm. I feel like I spent so much of last year just being like super super obsessed with the Fiona Apple record and super super obsessed with the Phoebe Bridges record, both of which are Anxiety like angsty sad, angsty things. sad things. So it's kind of nice to have two records that have come out this year that are like extremely
1: nice summer vibes. Oh yeah, and if Lord's record comes out as well, you'll have. Like a nice compliment Holy of three trinity. summer things to listen to. I will to. say that this is completely at
0: odds with my other my other pick, which is A Little Oblivions, which is the third record from Julian Baker. Oh, <laughs> Julian Baker, yeah. You worry. I mean I love Julian so much. Turn out the lights was one of my favourite records in twenty seventeen, so I was extremely hyped for a new Julian Baker record. Which is really, really brilliant. It's it's like wonderful. I could just like bathe in the work of julian baker but it's just Mm. quite nice to have it sandwiched between these other two like slightly more upbeat records um so that's our little retrospective of things that we've enjoyed so far in 2021 i feel like that was a nice mix from both of us and i feel like it would be really interesting to hear what other people have shared we did get we did do a little call out and we did get some really interesting and like a nice range of things from um some listeners and followers on twitter and people on instagram as well so do feel free to send us things that you've enjoyed so far in 2021 doesn't necessarily have to be things that have come out this year just anything that you've kind of enjoyed so far in the last six months we will share these on our social media so yeah just always love to know what everyone else is vibing with really just just extremely nosy so after all of that obsession of the week uh, I feel like I know what yours is, but please tell me anyway for on this public forum.
1: Well, I was going in with one and now I've got two. Oh, go on. Because in the past few minutes, oh, no. I have read a thing on Twitter that I am like giddy about. Oh God, okay. Okay, so I'm going to do this first. Okay. So Brandon Cronenberg right. is directing a, a third film. Right. And it stars Alex Skarsgård. Does it? I'm so excited. Oh my God. A Brandon Cronenberg film with a Skarsgård in it. This almost makes up for Bill Skarsgård leaving the Northmen. I am giddy. I am so pleased. What a treat. In real time. What a treat. I just, in real time, although this will probably go out like days later, but still. Breaking news. The other day. (laughs) Breaking news from the past. Uh, I am thrilled. Um, But what I came here to say really is, and I think you were expecting this. People know that I like Riverdale, standard. I'm a really, I just love Riverdale. I think it's great. One day I'm going to do a presentation to you on how good Riverdale is. And there are many lovely characters, but Joaquin is one of the best characters and is long gone. R.I.P. Joaquin, miss you. He's played by Rob Rako who I have casually followed on Instagram for, I don't know, two or three years, whenever Riverdale began. But for some reason, which I think may have started from having a random dream about him, I have devoted a lot of time to thinking about him <laughs> recently. And I'm quite sure that we could be BFFs if not soulmates. Here's my pitch. I think we complement each other in an op- opposites kind of way. So he really likes drumming and i like drummers he likes jewelry i like jewelry he's really really handsome and i'm quite average so i think we balance out quite well (laughs) he likes hot sauce which he posted about today i don't so he could have all the hot sauce to himself hang on a second you don't like hot sauce no it's too spicy do you not like sriracha uh i have to have a tiny bit of sriracha april a dab
0: I just... How has this never come up in conversation? A dab
1: of sriracha. I love a dab of sriracha, but not too much because it just throws the whole meal off this balance. Is, this is this is unhinged. Right. Well, you can share the hot sauce with my future Thanks husband, so Rob Rako. So I just want to say, Rob Rako, if you're listening to this, I am free on Thursday night. <laughs> if you want to hang out, please read this. And then let me know if you want to hang out on Thursday night when I am free. I swear to God, if he acknowledges... Your impassioned pitch. I think we've got shit in common. I think we could... Well, I'd say he likes driving around. I get car sick, but I do like being the driver. So if he doesn't mind being the passenger, we could listen to some some classic rock and share jewellery. I love that you have thought about this at
0: length, unsurprisingly so. (laughs) With like extreme rationale... Like, going like, oh yeah, I like this as well. I mean, I do this all the time to varying degrees with varying famed people.
1: So I just respect it. I think we could be buds who sometimes kiss. I think that that is a, a welcome pitch. Thanks so much. What's your obsession of the week?
0: Well, twofold. Because I saw first cow last week, um I've spent... Is it the cow? <laughs> it's the cow! No, um it's a great cow, though. Evie has is the cow's name, in case anyone cared. Um, I have spent some time revisiting and watching for the first time some Kelly Reichardt films um there's I've only seen a couple of them so I've just been kind of watching them really I watched Night Moves uh, a couple of days ago yesterday I watched Meek's Cut-Off and Old Joy I think Old Joy is my favorite so far just very nice just to remember what it's like to like I don't know go outdoors and do stuff they just make me want to travel quite a lot especially because a lot of them are set in Oregon like Pacific Northwest I just get very mm. wistful for like periods of time where like I could just travel and go places and just be carefree so that's my first thing can't imagine that anymore can you imagine um so it's basically Carrie, no. Kelly Reichardt films also it would be remiss of me to not mention the fact that I am probably single-handedly being kept alive by watching Ethan Hawke films at the moment um so i have just been doing this like really pointless distraction project of rewatching basically every film that ethan hawke has been in i've watched 26 so far 26. 26 i'm having a great time doing that i just love him i just think we could be like friends that would hang out and listen to wilco and other sad dad rock He's just great, isn't he? So there we go, that's what I've been doing with my time.
1: Lovely, lovely.
0: There we go. That's us. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst, we're on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can find us by searching for The Thirst. If you wanted to drop us a review as well, that would be brilliant. Um, you can find us on Instagram as well, with the Thirst Pod, we're on Facebook as well, The Thirst Pod and our blog URL is thethirspod.wordpress.com. Bye. Bye.